Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, you are listening to a rad, that's me, rad religion broadcasting premiere podcast, damn you Hollywood, and here's your host, Robert Winfrey, yay! Yay! Alright everyone, let's get right to it. Tonight we're talking Nazis, which is a word that's probably going to get us demonetized on YouTube, so let's just get it out of the way. <laughs> Make America great again! Wait, no, what? Don't do that. <laughs> just don't. I've got to, I'm going to have to yell about that enough when we talk about the movie proper. I don't need to yell at you about it now. Okay. Yes, we're talking Munich, the edge of war tonight. So a little behind the scenes yeah, here. Yeah, and um, I, I just... I have to get this out of the way. Yeah, you can see above where Mark and I are currently on the screen, the little uh, blurb, courtesy of the flickering myth. <laughs> that is not accurate. I don't know who wrote that, but for whoever wrote that for that particular outlet, I'm gonna yell at you when it comes to the critical analysis, the critical review, because no, <laughs> no, you were not gripped. You are not on the edge of your seat. Oh, my God. Are they going to go to war or aren't they? Neville that, Chamberlain, what are we doing here? Look, this is always the problem with historical dramas like this. Mm -hmm. Anyone who knows anything about history or the in particular. Look, this was a big one. Like everybody knows what's going to happen. Right. Uh, if you have any sort of historical context for other historical dramas, it again, it takes some of the edge out of it. Right. That's a big part of the problem with this movie that. Sorry, guys, unless you're going to go full on counterfactual and talk about what would have happened if yeah. Neville Chamberlain hadn't been a giant waste of space, <laughs> which is an exaggeration on my part and another bit of vision issue I have with this particular film, then we know what's going to happen. Yeah. Which means you need to find other ways to make the film interesting. And this film, yeah, we'll get into specifics. We'll talk about it. So how did we land on Munich, the Edge of War, of, of all things? So if you look at the calendar... Um, First things last, we were supposed to do Escape from Spiderhead and Mother Which is allegedly, allegedly, Escape from Spiderhead is being released at some point somewhere. It, I, I have seen it was supposed to be released Q4 of 2021. Then it was supposed to be released last Friday when this came out. And now it'll be released sometime, maybe never. Who knows? It'll I, get released around the same time Mission Impossible 7 does. Yeah, about, about that time. So uh, that's what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to escape from Spiderhead because Robert, uh, a year ago, said, hey, with, you know, we, we didn't know what the Why state not? of movies was going to be. <laughs> and he was like, I'm going to look, you know, look at these Netflix movies because maybe we start incorporating them into the calendar. And that's, you know, so that we don't have too many weeks off of not doing this was, was yeah. the original pitch. Well, and especially one, especially for bits of 2020 and again, 2021, when there was like, hey, here's a three week sweat stretch <laughs> with nothing. Right. Like, so okay, we, um, we need to keep the show moving, otherwise it loses momentum. Right. So um, the Escape from Spiderhead was the last one we hadn't gotten to on that list. And then I saw that it had a tentative release date. I was like, okay, we'll do that. And then there was like a Hulu movie that had come out late last year, early this year. I don't quite remember when. I think it was late last year. 
uh, called Mother Android with Chloe Grace Moretz. And I'm like, all right, that makes that makes for two movies. Um, you know, that way we can we have I, I sort of revamp the damn you Hollywood format so that if we're doing streaming movies, we don't do a money segment. We just do two movies and that takes up the good, a yeah. good 90 minutes, two hours. So that was the idea behind it. Then it went off the calendar again, and I was like, well, F. <laughs> um, the other side of this was Alexis Haina had made the suggestion. She, you know, Robert and I had in years past had done like our summer wrap up show when we would just do this over the summer. Um, and then, those you know, were the we were days. only hitting, yeah, those were the days. <laughs> and when we were only doing the blockbusters, we would do like a wrap up at the end of the year and see how everything did, kind of a scorecard thing. And we just hadn't been doing it, especially since we started going all year round. And she was like, why don't you got, you know, are she asked, <laughs> she asked, when are we going to do a, <laughs> a year end special? And I went, well, Robert and I will do one <laughs> when we're ready. <laughs> and <laughs> um, I was like, okay, well, I don't want to dedicate an entire show to that, but you know what, let's do a streaming movie around that same time, and then that'll be what the money segment is. And then I was like, yeah. okay, well, now what to do? I wasn't going to make Robert sit through money, Mother Android because I value his friendship. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I could see the writing on the wall with that movie. I thought about doing Encounter, but again, I, it didn't, you know, none of, neither one of them got great reviews. It was, did, uh, yeah. look, here's the again, kind of the long and the short of how we landed here for this movie. We looked at five or six different options mm -hmm. that were, again, some of these were not immediately this last week they were released, but you know, they're all fairly contemporary. Right. We just kind of went, all right, which is the least one likely to cause problems? <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which one is which one will Robert hate the least? And I wanted to do something contemporaneous. And so our choices for the 21st of January were Munich... And then there were, you know, there was some stuff in the theaters, but those all bombed so bad they should be studied. So they weren't, yeah. it wasn't even worth talking about. And, those, and so basically of all the options I had, this was the least worst. And I was like, Pretty okay, much. Munich, the edge of war is something I might've talked about with Andrew, if Andrew had been more available. I was like, so I'm interested in what this is. And I figured historical drama, Jeremy Irons, how could this possibly go wrong? Um, and then, and, and, and to be clear, mm -hmm. I sent after watching this, I sent Mark a message and said I did not care too much for this. And he went, <laughs> and, we, and we both kind of went, uh, well, we yeah, you know, we all put forth a good faith effort here. <laughs> I believe my exact internal reaction was, I try so hard. Why yeah. why can't I make you happy, Robert Winfrey? <laughs> anyway, I, so, I mean, look, I'm not I'm not mad at you about it. Like, no, this is, I didn't make the movie. Um, this is and, just yeah. Look, it's, but not like, I have, it's not like I told you, hey, we're going to do Red Rocket. So you want to do about this this movie about this this former porn actor who comes back to his small town, and at which point Robert changes all of his social media, and I never hear from him again. <laughs> I, I do have some consideration for your feelings when we do these things. So anyway, so that's where we landed. That's why we were here. We're, we're going to talk briefly about Munich and then really why we're here, the year-end review. So yeah, take it away, we'll talk a Robert. lot about 2021. Yeah. So, Munich, The Edge of War. It's about the peace conference that took place between... Uh, it was somewhat moderated by Benito Mussolini. It was bet uh, ostensibly between Adolf Hitler of Germany, Neville Chamberlain of uh, the Prime Minister for, the, for uh, the British Empire at the time, 
And uh, the believe the president of France was involved in there in some capacity. Dulde, Dalio, Dalio, Dalio. I apologize. I can't remember his name either. Um, this is uh, this is the famous, somewhat famously, this is when Hitler had started making aggressive overtones towards his neighboring countries, in particular the Sudetenland, which is what's discussed here. I believe uh, was somewhat called the Rhineland as well by Hitler because that was what he wanted to just call it because he thought it was German land. There was a major look. There was a majority of people in this particular uh, geographic area on the border of Czechoslovakia and Germany that were ethnic Germans had like this had been part of the German empire before the treaty of Versailles that ended world war one. And it was a very prudent, believe it or not, piece of land for Hitler to go. If you were to become expansionist, like Hitler was, this was a reasonable first step. This, hey, is, this was also a very common thing throughout Europe that there was oh, yeah. ethnic this, but territorial that my, I mean, the, um, I'm actually a product of that. My, my last name Radelich is Croatian. But the part of Croatia where my family is from has most often been part of Italy. So if you asked my grandfather, Michael Radelich, are we Italian? He was like, absolutely. You know, Knights, you know, Knights of Columbus, Sons of Italy, I mean, very, you know, lasagna, mozzarella. We're all very Italian here. It's like, that's a Croatian last name. And he would smack you and say, we're not Croatian, we're Italian. Yeah, that, that's a real thing. Uh, I mean, for you may not. Uh, people may not know this, but the German Empire was only founded like in the er, it the early 1900s, the late 1800s. Like the United States is technically older than Germany. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, the German nation draws on a much deeper history that goes back through plenty of other established nations throughout its history. But uh, yeah, it was put together like by Otto von Bismarck, more or less. Like, like Germany wasn't a thing; it was a consolidation of uh, the Prussian Empire and parts of Poland and bits of the Austro-Hungarian, not quite the Austro-Hungarian, that was a different, but point being, uh, it, it, this is this is a common enough thing for Europe that Hitler going, I want that. Right. Like, it's unreasonable because it's Hitler and because he said, I will, I will set the, I will set the entire continent of Europe on fire again. Well, also, but it, they but, had, civilized countries had divided, had divided the world up and we can argue the merits of its fairness. Many True. would come would look back on history and say it was rather unfair, but it was what it was. Civilized countries agreed these were the borders. And when you know, and when a president of a civilized country, when the leader of a civilized country says, "Nope, I ignore your borders," I you know, I'm going to reclaim that for the fatherland. You are in fact being unreasonable. Well, again, this is also land that was part of Germany ten years ago. Sure. Like, like, this Again, is why I'm, not, I'm not arguing the merits of the of the agree the Treaty of Versailles, which was uh, look anyone even people at the time who read the Treaty of Versailles went well. There's going to be another war. <laughs> Do you ever read 1919? Uh, read it? No, I did, I, and that was largely the consensus of that book was basically oh, yeah. like you know the the, the how the how uh, they they came to that agreement. And the effect it was going to have on Germany and everyone signing it was just like, we'll see in a few years when we start bombing each other again. Yeah, it was uh, a really interesting thing about that treaty is how Japan was treated, believe it or not. Um, Japan was technically part of World War One. They pitched in very late on the on the winning side, but they did stuff in the Pacific that was 
meaningful in some respects to the war effort. And then at the Treaty of Versailles, we're treated like the kids table. It was, and it's part of the reason that the elements of the Japanese higher command were a little bit pissy with what would become the allies in the second world war. And it contributed to them throwing their lot in with Germany and Italy. Uh, th that whole, that whole thing is a interesting discussion in and of itself. But what we're dealing with here is again, it's this um, pseudo espionage uh, take on this film. That's the book, take right? on these events. Yeah. If you ever get a chance to read it, it's really amazing. I, I will look that up. Uh, but it was, I mean, it was the, yeah, it was anyone who knew the history of Europe. Again, like they looked at that treaty and went, yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be like, it was well known. Like, the fact that certain political entities staved it off for as long as they did is uh, a bit, is miraculous almost in its own right. But we're dealing with the dramatization of this particular peace uh, grouping. And we primarily focus on two, uh, I believe they're mostly fictional characters, uh, by the names of. All right, so we have Sir, uh, we have George McKay who and, plays Hugh Leggett. Yeah, we have we have Hugh Leggett, and we have Paul von Hartmann. Yeah, played by George McKay and Giannis uh, Nivehonor, respectively. And I believe, again, I'm 90% sure these are fictional characters or they're amalgamations of other people. Uh, they're not, it, look, Jeremy Irons playing Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain's a real person. We assume. For better or for worse. <laughs> so we follow the, uh, we pick up with this particular story. It opens with that with those two and their uh, female friend, who's the girlfriend of uh, uh, Von Hartman. Uh, they were at Oxford for a time. This would have been a little bit after the end of the First World War. And we see that they were, you know, they're schoolmates, they're good friends. And then we flash forward to, <coughs> we're all about to go to war because Hitler says, give me this land and Czechoslovakia and a bunch of the other places that helped establish Czechoslovakia in the aftermath of World War One went, no, you can't have that. <laughs> and Hitler said, well, fine, then I'm going to take it by force. And they went, well, then we'll have to fight you. And he said, so <laughs> we don't want to fight he essentially said today is a good day to die pretty much <laughs> um leggett is one of the private secretaries to the prime minister of uh again of the british empire neville chamberlain and von hartman works at the uh he is a, he's a translator he's a translator and he does some other uh, you know actuary kind of thing for uh hitler for the uh, for the uh, the office, the the offices of Germany, and von Hartmann is part of a one of the many conspiracies against Adolf Hitler, who was, for all of his popularity with segments of the masses of Germany, there were a lot of people in power who did not like him all that much. I don't think there was a huge appetite to. One of the things the film deals with, and I don't want to interrupt your plot synopsis, but I think no, it's important okay. to say this. Because, because we're talking about real historical events, I don't care that much, so please. I don't think there was a large appetite. There, what the film deals with, this is what I started to say, what the film deals with is there was, especially in light of Versailles, there was a need for Germany to reclaim its um, self-confidence, yeah. as it were. But there was not a large appetite to march into war. I mean, when when you know, and this is this is what largely informed Tolkien's works and a lot of the literature that came out of the early to mid twentieth century was the idea that they really thought the world was going to end. That the the war to end all wars, you know, the trench warfare, the amount of 
shell shock, what we would call PTSD today, that people suffered the long lengths of time people were at war, the the large leap in war technology to murder vast swaths of people. There was this is it, a it, it took its toll, and people were not eager to do it again. There's uh no they really weren't and if you're not familiar i can recommend it's a long it's a longer set of podcasts but if you're not familiar with world war one you want to know more about it the hard uh dan dan carlin's hardcore history podcast has like a i think it's a five-part mm-hmm. series that's uh, called uh, blueprint for armageddon that is all about world war one uh, mostly the european theater but so the film speaks to adolf hitler who really um amalgamized the uh, the masses and you know, behind you know it, it gave them very much their confidence back of course <clears throat> much like you know you can definitely draw parallels to modern america where you know now people taking that self-confidence that jingoism and then taking it out on uh perceive you know those that they perceived as slighting them in the country uh, and, it, and it creates a really nasty environment and that is a large part of what's driving things but the other big part of it the bigger part of it is again you have people in the military you have people throughout the government that you know when hitler was just saying hey it's all the jews fault that's fine when hitler was saying get the tanks ready we're gonna we're gonna march into the uh into the sudetenland they were like hold on the last time we tried this lots of us died maybe let's not do it's fine to pick on the jews it's not okay to roll tanks into czechoslovakia and hitler went I don't see what the difference is. Uh, pretty much. <laughs> and uh, I have to be very careful about what I'm about to say. Uh-huh. Because it, for a very specific reason, whenever you talk about this subject matter, everyone, li- this, is an, this is a gripe I have with the movie, believe it or not. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a very minor gripe. Um, but whenever you wind up having these kinds of discussions, Inevitably, nobody wants to, speaking the truth about this is difficult because you, you wind up having to say somewhat positive things about one of history's great monsters. I feel that, like an, I feel like an educated person, a, a, a thoughtful person, can parse out the good parts of Hitler without I, dismissing the genocidal part of Hitler. Well, again, I, my big thing is just I and we're not a big enough podcast network for this to be a thing, but I don't want there to be a misquote of me saying, you know, Adolf Hitler was a genius. <laughs> bearing, <No>. bearing in, <laughs> nobody That's clipped that. That's where by the way. Nobody clipped that. <laughs> uh, I mean, when, when in fact, in certain aspects, he, I mean, he was, if nothing else, he was a logistical genius. Look at what he organized. Like that kind of, you, Mark, have tried to organize a group of people mostly on this with, with the benefits of the internet and shared documentation and any number of ways to get a hold of us to tell us be here at this time with this material prepped and you still feel like you're hurting cats true hitler, <laughs> hitler organized an entire nation that was in the midst of one of the worst economic repressions in modern history there was a phrase that came out of that particular er- uh, era of time. It was like, well, at least Hitler could make the trains run on time. Hang on. That's actually, that was not Hitler. Uh, that was Mussolini, who was. That was Mussolini? It, okay, yeah. sorry. Because, well, because the joke is, 
in Italy, the trains have never run on time since. Mm -hmm. Like ever since Mussolini was deposed and violently killed, as he should have been. The like, well, at least they made the trains run on time. As your as your train from Rome to Florence is, you know, three hours behind schedule. So, getting back to the movie but, here. Yeah, getting back to the movie here. Um, so there's a there's a plot to potentially arrest Hitler if he orders uh, this invasion. Like, there's an, they feel there's enough people in the army who are opposed to this to arrest him and then deal with him. Mm -hmm. should he make this order now i want to give the movie an, a bit of credit for leaving that a bit ambiguous like mm -hmm. this is their plan but there it is not a guarantee I mean, there as i mentioned there were a lot of plots against hitler that man survived a lot of assassination attempts believe it or not <laughs> some by the skin of his teeth uh i mean the, there was that fairly awful tom cruise movie valkyrie that was about the bombing attempt on Hitler's life that he survived. And if you look at that, if you look at that, kind of the reason he survived was he just sat at a different spot on the table. <laughs> like they, they had planned to blow up the bomb from here and Hitler sat as far away from it as possible just by accident almost. <laughs> and it just kind of, again, it, it, it pretty much saved his life. So there were plots against him, but there were, there this is another bit of the, I have a big problem with the revisionist history that goes on in this film, in this film. Um, but this is one of the things they get right. Like there's a plan. There's also a bit of an open question about whether or not it would have succeeded. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. Hitler makes the order and part of this room, part of the generals assembled go, no, you're under arrest for violating, for, for trying to violate international law. There is a question about, okay, so does everyone go along with this? Do we get a gunfight here in the high chambers? Like, what, what exactly happens here? We're attempting a coup at this point. Right. And it's an open question whether or not that would have worked. But it is the plan that these people have in place. Um, Leggett, as I mentioned, is one of, the, uh, one of the private secretaries to Neville Chamberlain. And... <coughs> Uh, he's drawn into this because of his association with von Hartmann, who comes into possession of the minutes of a meeting of the High Chancellery. That includes Adolf Hitler. And this is where Hitler lays out his real plan, which starts with the Sudetenland, and then goes, you know, the German people need space. Like <laughs> We've got a lot of people here, and we are unreasonably constrained by this treaty. And we're going to expand. And... This was always, uh, this is always Hitler's stated, one of Hitler's stated goals. It's also important to remember your history here that World War I is finally the last hurrah of the age of, uh, age of empires, the age of exploration. I mean, at this point, you know, what the end of World War I really does mark the end of a lot of the empires just sort of crashing and burning and then subdividing those territories. Yeah. It goes a little bit further with World War II, but that was kind of the end well, of it. World so, War One carves up, um, if I can remember specifically, the German Empire. Right. Because Germany was an empire at the time of World War One. Carved up Africa. Um, Africa was already carved up. It, it re-carved Africa because Germans, the Germans' holdings in Africa were removed. A lot of the places that I think the Dutch held in yeah. Africa were taken by other places by military might and then mm -hmm. just left to their own devices at the end of the war. 
So um, the Ottoman Empire was carved up because that right. had been. Yeah, that, the, mo that, the, the modern Middle East as we know it pretty much is a product of Versailles. Yeah. Um, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire is carved up into like Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, yeah. Austria, Hungary, and a, a bunch of that other place along the Balkans. Right. That was all part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The reason Empire. why that's important to know is that because Hitler, because sort of a pop culture history perceptions, the only thing that you know about Hitler is, is the Holocaust. But you got to remember, Hitler is a man of, of a time where you're invading your, the neighboring country to build, you know, to build out your empire was not an uncommon thing. And it only just ended in his lifetime. And it wasn't old enough yet to be a passe thing. I mean, certainly some people felt that way, but I mean, the world, <laughs> the British Empire certainly doesn't give up a lot of its territory until much later. The British, so I mean, it, even in the start of World War II, the British Empire is still very much in effect in parts of uh, significant portions of Africa. India is still part of the British Empire at this time, right? I believe. So, you know, we and then across the pond, you know, we tend to forget this about our own history, but the United States was very much like, you know, this was the age of manifest destiny, you know, get all the way across, go, go all the way across to California, mm -hmm. go as far south as we can. We had pretty significant, uh, we had pretty significant interest in holdings in the Philippines um, and other so, places in like the South Pacific. So in Southeast ta taking Asia, the yeah. Holocaust out of the equation, what Hitler was doing was not completely out of the realm of uh, sanity with world leaders. You know, there, there was oh, definitely this was common. This, there was definitely a, a an appetite for not engaging in large scale conflicts again, but there was just as many people I think that were very much like, no, 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 no. If you can crush your neighbor and it not cause them, you know, cause a million deaths, sure, why not? Yeah, you know, it sucked that we lost our empire. It's embarrassing. Let's have another one. Yeah, pretty much. So anyway, so, so you have these two figures that are that are and sort of you have one very reticent very uh, in legat you have you have a very reticent character who does who is in a very staid very uh structured environment he does not want want to make waves and then there's the other guy whose all sense of urgency and it's like yeah but if you don't do this death you don't <laughs> understand like again the kind of the the people opposing hitler at this point in time are kind of looking at this like most of us do with hindsight mm -hmm. like if we stop him now it's gonna suck. Like this is war. It's never pretty. It's never easy. But if we stop him now, it sucks short. If you let him continue building up, and if you if you keep trying to appease him, which they did, and they they did again after this particular peace conference. Like they did this. They said, okay, you can have this, and then you get nothing else. And it was said, yeah, sure. This totally ends my expansionistic goals and territorial requirements. And then six months later, he's like, hey, give me that. And I went, right. Oh, all right, fine. You can have that. No one wants that anyway. And then he said, okay, give me Poland. <laughs> and they went, you can't have Poland. And he said, well, then stop me. And then he took over Poland while everyone else was signing declarations of war. Uh, after, and right around then, he signs the non-aggression pact with Russia. And the Russians are like, yeah, I don't care what he does. When he doesn't right. attack us, we're, we're fine. <laughs> and considering when he does finally attack Russia, how that goes for Germany... It, it's an interesting, you know. I, I don't want to get into uh, down this. Uh, tangent, but could, you, could you imagine the world in which in which we just give him Europe, and now he has Europe outside of England, like he has continental Europe, and then he starts going the other way into Russia, and it all falls apart anyway. Here's the thing about that. 
And this is one of those things that I, I find kind of both interesting and frustrating. Um, the two biggest counterfactuals that people play around with uh, when it comes to, you know, alternate histories and whatnot, the two most famous ones are also the two that were the least, when I said the least likely, I mean darn near impossible mm-hmm. when you look at everything that went on. Because the two everyone plays around with are, did what if the South won the American Civil War, which they were never mm-hmm. going to do, right? and what if Hitler won World War II, which he was never going, never going to, do. to do. And when there's so many other interesting counterfactuals to play around with, those are the ones everyone focuses on. Hitler was always going to attack Russia. He Again, his stated goal is, I need land. There's not that much land west of Germany. I'm not saying none, I'm saying not much. Oh, there's France. You get France, and then if you get into the Iberian Peninsula, but he didn't want to mess with the Spaniards yeah. for whatever reason. But yeah, you, so you got France. You still need space. And here's the other thing Hitler needed, especially for his war effort. He needed oil. Where's the nearest reliable oil fields relative to Germany? Russia. It's in the Crimean Peninsula. Yeah. So he, and that's what, I mean, when he attacked Russia, that was his big push. Like he had one force going for Moscow, because if I can mess with the government, maybe they'll fall, which is not how that would have worked. The Russian, Russia is enormous. The Russian government could have picked up and moved back one city and went, all right, try again. Well, we've got this endless amount of space. But the other force went towards the Black Sea, mm-hmm. where all the oil, Black or Caspian? Caspian's north, Black Sea. It went towards the oil fields there because that's what Hitler needed. He had this wonderful, I mean, there were so many tanks and other machinery uh, in the German war machine that towards the end were abandoned, not because they broke down, because they couldn't fuel them. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're getting on a half an hour here. All right, so... This is about that. So we have, again, we have Jeremy Irons playing Neville Chamberlain, who doesn't want war at all. He is of the belief that, look, no one can predict the future. True. And Neville Chamberlain's, and this is one of the things I actually like about the drama of the movie. Please don't yell at me for liking the drama of it. Um, Neville Chamberlain doesn't know. I mean, part part of the plot of this thing is that he is outright told, you don't understand. You're being led astray. Hitler's going to attack no matter what you do, whether it's now or tomorrow, this is going to happen. Here's the proof. And Neville Chamberlain goes, it's not enough for me to act on. And I, and I kind of saw his point. (laughs) Um, He also can't, he's not a mind reader, nor can he predict the future. And his whole thing is we assume this leader of a, uh, you know, of a civilized country, this educated leader of a civilized country will see, will not give into madness and take the you know the world into a giant deathly conflict and neville chamberlain's whole point is as long as i believe this man can be reasoned with there's no reason for me not to try and like i get it you know i i we sure we look back on it now like how did you not see the writing on the wall but that's with the benefit of hindsight when you're in the thick of it and you're assuming you're dealing with rational people which there was no reason to there was no reason to assume Hitler wasn't rational at the time. Well, there was no reason to assume Hitler was less rational than any other world leader. You can, do, which is an important. I say that because it's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. There's a level of, um, at a bare minimum, uh, insanity that has to go into leading a major world. There's a a bit of insanity that goes into leading a podcast with a dozen people. I get it. Uh, (laughs) I mean, look, this was one of this is my litmus test for whether or not I take your political opinion seriously, believe it or not. 
and I, I would ask this of people if the, if this discussion was going that way to say, okay, fine, you don't like the president. Would you, you know, do you want that job? Right. And anyone who says yes is not there. There's only two people who say yes to that question. Only two. One of them is on the rare occasion you're talking with someone who is in a legitimate position to maybe mount a run for the for the office. Mm. And the other is idiots who don't think. All right. So if you fall up. into the if you fall into the latter category, I don't take your political opinion seriously. Um, and so they meet, they go to Munich. This is where the big peace talks are. Hitler is somewhat Hitler is all set to invade. And then Chamberlain prevails upon Mussolini to intervene on his behalf. Like, just get him to talk with us. We can do something that doesn't result in war. And Mussolini, who was one of the few people who had Hitler's ear historically, in fact, Hitler always considered Mussolini the superior fascist. Uh, Mussolini, in fact, came up with fascism as a political ideology. Uh, Mussolini intervenes and says, you know, you can get what you want without war. Just come talk. You can be as unreasonable as you like in person with other diplomats. No one's reasonable here anyway. They all show up in Munich, and what's going on here is Leggett has been kind of roped into obtaining the document, the minutes of this meeting of the High Chancellery from von Hartmann. And he does this, he reads them, he's horrified, because his opinion of Hitler is what a lot of foreign people's opinion of Hitler was at the time. He's a blowhard, he's a racist. And in a lot of ways, and I, and, and I don't, especially after you just said racist, but and I don't really want to have the reason why this movie got made, other than it was adapted from a from a popular novel, was because of the parallels between Hitler and Donald Trump in the following try to draw, yeah. In the following way. Donald Trump's big success was being able to stir up disenfranchised people. Hitler's uh, big success was being able to stir up an entire country of disenfranchised Germans. And so what this what the movie is trying to do is do a sort of without pointing to it directly. It's not like they show you pictures of Trump or anything, but the movie is definitely the narrative point of view is this is what happens when we elect these charismatic uh, blowhards. They, they have they're more dangerous than we than we think they are. I think that there's a tendency to sort of dismiss them as blowhards as idiots as you know as reality tv show hosts and what the, the real but the reality is is that they can be insidious they can be a vehicle for other you know uh bad intentioned political machinery to you know come into place and then they're not really the problem the fact that they could open the door is and so again but you don't know any of this at the time no i'd let this is one of the things like unless you're kind of inside Germany and not just a German citizen, but you're like mm -hmm. part of the you have to be like a government official to really understand at this point exactly what's going on with Hitler. Right. Otherwise, yeah. you know, the, you otherwise, you know, you, you don't like the direction your country's going like there, there's right. people who are dissatisfied with Hitler's leadership. But, you know, I've been dissatisfied with pretty much every president in my lifetime. That's not. That doesn't mean they're planning the oh, types yeah. of things Hitler was planning. Right. You also have to look at the collective trauma that, that those people suffered oh, yeah. in the wake of Versailles and everything that came after. And I mean, what people might not realize about Versailles is how much it crippled 
Germany in the sense and, of like they, you know, they couldn't even mount a a military. You know, it had to be police. Yep. Um, they they took on the financial brunt of the war, yeah. which crippled bearing, that economy. Bearing in mind, yeah, like the, Germany had allies for that mm -hmm. particular, like they were allied with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they were allied with the Ottoman Empire, like they. World War One is a complicated war in many respects, in part because it came about out of out of the era of uh, like again the diplomacy of a mention man I mentioned earlier, Otto von Bismarck. There are college classes taught about Bismarckian diplomacy because that man arranged treaties and or and agreements and whatnot in these un unsustainably complicated ways. Like only he could run that machine. <laughs> I sympathize. Uh, to a degree, yes. <laughs> and and when it fell and when it fell apart, uh, in the aftermath of the war, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire didn't exist anymore. The Ottoman Empire didn't exist anymore. So who's gonna, as part of what we do at the end of war at that period of time, who's going to pay the reparations? Well, all we've got left is Germany. Who's yeah. gonna give up the most territory? Well, a bunch of these other places no longer exist. Germany. Who are we going? It's almost impossible, I think, for a, for the contemporary human, uh, especially you know, first so e even if you can logically, really understand what it means. Even if you can logically parse out why Versailles ended the way that it did, and to kind of explain it to like, you know, in, in a, like a parent talking to a child, here's why we're doing what we're doing. It's not that we're being unfair. It's that these are these are these are the issues we're dealing with, and these are the only way that we can deal with them. You still then, you know, have people, they're never going to hear that. They're never going to hear. They're just going to be like, we lost, we were put upon, and we want we want revenge. You know, there's well, a lot and, of that sentiment. It, and it doesn't help the case when Hitler's making valid points. Mm -hmm. Like, this is one of those things that uh, there's a, I, I'm not going to go through the whole quote, I can't remember it, but there's a fairly famous quote from Hitler um, that mm -hmm. he wrote in the aftermath of the Treaty of Versailles being signed. That basically predicted, you know, you are you are stripping a proud people of everything that they've had. And the and I mean, the army of Germany at the start of the First World War is one of the greatest that you can see pictures of it and whatnot. in this newsreel footage, it, it, it's a great army, like just by mm -hmm. any reasonable uh, understanding of what it means to be a great army. You are stripping these people of everything. Yep. And, and then expecting them to not retaliate. Yeah. And it's so funny because, like, how do you not look at what's going on in the world now and, you know, and see just the, the circular pattern of history that when people become disenfranchised and mass, one, they seek a scapegoat. Two, they, they, they seek to reclaim what they feel has been rightfully stolen from them. The point. So getting through the rest of this plot, he obviously signs the Treaty of Munich. They stave yeah. off the war for for a whole year. At the time, Neville Chamberlain is seen as a hero as he evaded, as he avoided war when he comes home. But then a year later, when when Hitler invades the Sudetenland anyway, well, uh, hang on, a, 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 a year later, he, a year later, he invades Poland. Yeah, like like the, the treaty. This treaty gives him that land. Yes, I misspoke. Sorry, but yeah, when he kicks off World War II. Mm -hmm. Here we go, <laughs> and everyone looks at ne everyone looks at Neville Chamberlain and went, "You idiot!" Sure, um, and that's it, the movie. But the movie centers, and, and I'm just going to get right into their crap. Right the the movie centers around really the relationship between uh, von Hartmann and Lagat. Lagat is very much 
trying to not get fired essentially and he's you know and it's so funny because so so many films have dealt with the lack of the the perceived lack of urgency in british government um i've, I've talked i've talked about this in the past about how when i worked at um, a community mental health center you know we were having trouble getting enough people to you know to pay their co-pays and keep the lights on and you know a lot of conversations were revolving around like how are we going to get more patients how are we going to get more people to pay and there was another person who was concerned with what color the carpet should be in our conference room yeah, and, one of these things is of immediate concern <laughs> and there's and so there's a there's valid or invalid perceived or actual this idea that that's kind of how the british government was is they tended to not have a sense of urgency and sort of see you know think they had all the time in the world to deal with these things and then there's people going no 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 no. the world is ending the sky is falling the world is ending everything's on fire you need to act meanwhile at going, meanwhile at, meanwhile at buckingham palace there's a discussion about how the proper way to fold napkins yeah and they're concerned with what color the carpet should be in the conference room um so because and if you wanted to if you want to end up the discussion about napkin folding in buckingham palace listen to mark and andrew review the crown Anyway, <laughs> so um, a lot of this movie is Von Hartman, who is very much what Robert was talking about. He's coming from this place of, hey, we were stripped of our dignity. We were stripped of our pride, and we were literally stripped of our land and our finances, and we want it yeah, back. Again, uh, and then just for after... those of you, uh, very briefly, for those of you who don't know, mm -hmm. in the 1920s, the German economy was so bad, the money... That they were printing, like like the the they believe they were Deutschmarks at the time, literally not worth the money it was printed on. <laughs> like it was that bad. It, it, it was the it, it's some of the worst uh, like the, in, the inflation, worst runaway inflation in like the yeah. history of, of civilization. So, certainly, you know, since the nineteen, certainly since the you know start of the twentieth century, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Like it was. Th there's pictures of people using bundles of cash, like like children using them to build with. They're yeah. that useless. They're that worthless. So the drama, the drama of Munich, the edge of war is first, like you were told the story of the Treaty of Munich through the friendship of these two people and this girl. And so here's what happens in, in a very, very brief nutshell. You, you know, they're friends. Hitler happens. It's like, hey, Hitler is restoring. <laughs> Hitler is making Germany great again. We like Hitler. Oh, wait, Jews are being beaten in the street and the love of my life was thrown into a wall and paralyzed. Maybe this isn't such a great idea. Meanwhile, it's like, if we just pacify Hitler, it'll be fine. If we just pacify Hitler, it'll be fine. If we just pacify Hitler, it'll be fine. Well, and, and, and these two entities as personified by these two individuals are in conflict with one another. And at the end of the day, this is all laid before Neville Chamberlain, who's like, surely he isn't a madman who wants to usher us into another world war. Surely I'm doing the right thing in negotiating peace here by giving away this land, which is disputably, you know, theirs, not theirs. And it's so the, the Munich, the edge of war is a tragedy because while there's well, the immediate victory of the signing of you know of averting war it only delayed what we would now know to be the inevitable here's what i like about this movie one i thought jeremy irons like oh, yeah. jeremy irons is a good actor duh i thought jeremy irons did a 
very good job of playing Neville Chamberlain. You know, the, the, the key to that role is to be able to express the things that I'm talking about through performance, not just in yeah. dialogue reading, but, you know, the agony of, I understand what you're saying that there's there's a war plan you're laying out in front of me, but I have to try despite that to negotiate peace. I have to assume I'm dealing with reasonable parties and like Jeremy Irons practically contorts himself just to kind of give you a comparison. Like though, if you watch Jeremy Irons and Jeremy Irons uh, body performance, you can see that he's really agonizing with a lot of these ideas. This is as opposed to Kang in Loki, who's, I don't know what he's doing in that final scene, but it's the same kind of thing where you're trying to act through the subtext of the script with your body, and the guy playing Kang and Loki failed at it miserably, but Jeremy Irons nails it. Watch them both. Watch the finale to Loki and watch Munich, The Edge of War. Get a side-by-side -side comparison of what acting with your body is like um, when you're trying to deal in subtext. I liked the fact that, like, for me, the star of this thing, even though Jeremy Irons is your big lead and he's Neville Chamberlain and he's at the top of the cast list, I liked, you know, and your sympathy character is George McKay's character of Leggett. The character I liked and the character I was following, the one that seemingly had an arc, was um was paul the, the guy that plays paul von hartman um you can you know there's a lot of intensity in his performance which i really really liked as he's trying to you know i i sympathize with this because i've had those arguments i've had those arguments with robert i've had those arguments with a lot of my friends where it starts out social enough but you get pressed into a corner with how you believe and what you feel and then you just lash out and the, this utter frustration of you people just don't get it. You don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know what this country is dealing with and, and that you won't listen to reason is utterly mind boggling. And it, and it just, you know, and it makes you hate your friends after a while because you're like, why, why don't you get this? And then to realize, you know, to have that moment of self-reflection when you realize, oh no, I was taken in by a monster and a con artist. And my and my friend, my love was hurt in the process, and how that changed him. And now it's that same level of intensity, but it's it's that sense of urgency of if we don't stop this now, we're all going to die. It's the end of the world, and no one's listening to him. And I thought I, the actor's name. I, you said it before. I, I don't want to mispronounce it, but I thought he did an excellent job of keeping up that level of dramatic tension and sense of urgency. Uh, the guy playing uh, George McKay, the guy who plays Lagat, he plays befuddled really, really. I haven't seen befuddled portrayed this well since Harrison Ford in Clear and Present Danger. Oh, doggy! No, no, no. That's that's not the that's not the best befuddled. Patriot Games, maybe. Not even Harrison Ford gives the best befuddled. Okay. Look, the best befuddled of all time comes from Hugh Grant. In what movie? Or just in general? In general. Okay. Well, he doesn't seem as befuddled in Four Weddings and a Funeral, but... Pretty much, like, look, any of, any of the crappy romantic comedies starring starring Hugh Grant, I that's his whole on... thing. Is he, That's his whole thing, is him being charmingly befuddled. Well, I centered on Harrison. Harrison Ford's always like my, um in, in Clear and Present Danger and Patriot Games, is always like, I talked about this on The Long Road to Ruin, if you can hear it. 
Um, I talked about this at the time where it's just he just has this perpetual look of I have no idea what's going on. Where are my pants? You know, and you're like the lead of an of a spy espionage action film and you have no clue what's happening around you. It's really funny. Um, uh, but yeah, George McKay is probably the, my least enjoy the least enjoyable. Like, he, I, I think that's what they were going for. So I can't necessarily blame him. But I, like, I'm not going to I'm not going to blame the actor entirely. But boy, is not a limp noodle character. Yeah. And I like, think that's, that's my issue. Nothing. Like Jeremy Irons is just wrestling with the weight of the world and losing. You know, he's just in a he's in a jujitsu match with, you know, with all of these ideals. And he's just being squeezed every which way. And you can really feel that about him. The agony he's going through. And the other guy is all intensity. Like. You know, like I felt like he was going to jump out of this movie and into like the next twelve rounds movie with John Cena. Like he's like that level of intense. There's the first thing I thought of. Um, I don't know why when <laughs> talking about intensity, that was what came to your mind. More, more of his body shape. He, he, he. You know, he looked very muscular in the torso, despite the fact that he's in like all these big suits. And this is not that kind of movie. Any case, um, but it might have been him in like one of the one of the beer garden scenes. Uh, but yeah, like like that conversation in the beer garden was fantastic. Like that first conversation where you know where the girl is talking about like protest, going to a protest against the Nazis, and he's like, "Fuck both you guys, I can't even deal." You know, like I love that scene; it's so good. And then later on, when they're you know when they're back in the bar and he's trying to explain like this was all bad, <laughs> we, I I I made a wrong turn here. Now we're in a terrible place, and I need you to help before it all goes to hell. Those are great scenes. So, you know, the, if you do like an anatomy of a scene of the express dialogue and everything, I think those are very, I think those are very gripping. Um, this was very much like, it had like a stage play aesthetic for me. Um, in any case, yeah, but to go back to George McKay, George McKay, like that, to set that character, there's just, I don't, it, he's like the Eddie Izzard joke about, you know, British drama, you know, where it's like every, every line delivery is, I, who, I don't, but maybe I, but, I guess I better go. <laughs> you know? um, or but... uh, what's the what, what was the Family Guy joke about British porn? <laughs> right. <laughs> so should we have a shag then? No, I think not. Yeah, very well then. <laughs> but um, if I if there was anything I didn't necessarily love about it, it's kind of what you're alluding to, and I'm gonna sort of secede the floor because I don't have a whole lot to say beyond that. Is if you know what the how the movie ends. You know the movie. The, you you know what this leads to. This leads to World War Two. That's history. The, the 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 key in telling a story like this is being able to get there despite the fact that you know how it's going to end. And I don't think the movie sticks the landing where that's concerned. No. I think, in terms of pure drama and performance, the movie succeeds very well. In terms of a dynamic and gripping narrative. I don't think the movie hits the mark at all. No, there's there's several problems with this film. One, let's get this out of the way. It's too long. This movie does not earn its runtime in that particular respect. Um, the, it lost me at several places. There's a bunch of scenes that just you could have trimmed. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there's any that need to be cut entirely, but there's some lingering shots. We spend entirely too long on certain acts of espionage that just... You know, follow me, but don't be seen. So we get like five minutes of this nonsense before we wind up in the like the end point when we get to them in the beer hall together is fine. That's a great scene. Mm -hmm. Getting there's a giant pain in the butt. It's a travel log through the city of uh, Munich. Yeah, and there's a lot of that, and it's mm -hmm. 
we see Paul stash the like when he's uh, got when he gets into the into this uh, entourage of Hitlers to go to this peace conference. We have to we see him try to hide uh, you know a gun and the document he's smuggling out away from inspectors and whatnot. Okay, I like that's a good scene. Then he wakes up and goes to check on it, and we have to go through this again. And there's a bunch of like furtive glances with that SS guy that's kind of stalking him. The guy's been assigned to double check on him, and it just it's not a well paced out film in that respect. Some of it yeah. is fine. They but... were going for dramatic tension in you know in a kind of a silky spy movie kind of way, and it's like a spy movie as told by a librarian. Yeah, it's really that's a pretty big problem. Uh, the character of Leggett is again he's a, he's a limp noodle man. He's nothing. There, mm-hmm. And if he's part of what's supposed to keep me interested in this film is, you know, the dynamics between him and other characters and whatnot, or you know, his part of the story, you failed miserably. Like, I, that, that doesn't work. Um, the guy they got to play Hitler. <laughs> I, I gotta watch these. But let me, but let me deliver that line for 20 minutes. I am no watch thief. Not uh, not the best portrayal of Hitler in film or television. <laughs> um, I mean, he trying to play Adolf Hitler as an actor, like that's got to be a big act. Like that, that's not an easy thing to do, especially because the footage of Hitler is usually him whooping up the crowd. You don't have a lot of quiet moments with Hitler, so I don't know if anyone really knows what he was like. And, well, here's the other problem about that, and this goes to, I think, the direction. Mm-hmm. Um, there are films that that tell parts of Hitler's story that do try to portray him as he was, which is not only one of history's great monsters, but also a human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy who did, in fact, care about his secretary's birthday. You know, like, there's... Um, and it's just, and people don't like that. Like there's a segment of people that only want to try and understand or that want to see Hitler as a boogeyman. And there was there was a director of a choice to play Hitler in this movie as Darth Vader, which yeah, doesn't but, really work. But Darth Vader without gravitas. Yeah. Like th- this movie expects that the fact that our character is having a conversation with Hitler to be enough to make you tense like so oh no here's my here's my my interpretation of like the direction of Hitler like okay we want you to be Darth Vader we want you to have that kind of menace and authority and bring that kind of tension to the room okay but you cast Darth Vader you you, the actor that you cast for Darth Vader is Ernest well if you got Pee Wee Herman to do the voice of Darth Vader instead of James (laughs) Earl Jones like you okay Ernest Pee Wee yeah 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 yeah. I, I get the it just, it doesn't work. No, and that's a that's a pretty big problem. And again, I, the I think faces that actor made. I thought he was doing a parody at first. Like if if you if you're interested in more interesting portrayals of Hitler, uh, believe it or not, I think the one from Inglorious Bastards is pretty good for what yeah. it is. Um, there's the famous one that's just the bunker that got memed for a while on YouTube, where you would people would change the subtitles to Hitler yelling. 
to be mm-hmm. about whatever they wanted it to be about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you might remember again. That was a meme craze. I, I, I do remember that actually. Which was great, and then the parent company who owns that particular film was like, "Stop doing this." <laughs> uh, there's another one that actually has Anthony Hopkins playing Hitler, um, which is quite good. But if you're gonna, if you're kind of in a catch twenty two here in some respects, you can't tell this story without putting Hitler on screen, right? Like you cannot write this movie and have Hitler never appear. You could, too, that's a, that's a very distinctive dramatic choice. Hang on, again, like, but you can't do that. He's he is too important to this story to never see on screen. So you have to have him there in some capacity. Unfortunately, the capacity you chose is one that is devoid of anything remotely threatening, menacing, or compelling. And if you're trying to get a... But you expect the... It's the dissonance, I think, that kills me. If you're trying to get across how could Neville Chamberlain, this lifelong politician be suckered in by Hitler. Well, if we present him in this way, doesn't it become more apparent that he could be, if he's presented in this, you know, almost ineffectual capacity, doesn't that make more sense that everyone kind of brushed him off? But that doesn't work when you're trying to tell the audience that every time we see one of our main characters interact with him, we're supposed to be on the edge of our seats because this might be the end. Like, and that, that dissonance in the writing, I think is a big problem for what goes on here. And again, it's capped off by a fairly anemic portrayal of a, whatever else you want to say about Hitler, a a profoundly important figure in world history, but also a profoundly important figure in this story that you're telling. And you did none of that justice. Last thing. Um, So again, I, I don't take too many issues with the direction for the most part. Again, there's, there's issues I have with some of the ways the actors were directed, but the cinematography is all fine. Everything that they fought, you know, there's some nice shots. There's some really good scenes. It's, it's hit and miss. But what I think what kills me about this is a bit of the revisionist history that goes into the character of Neville Chamberlain. And it's 90% good. And then we get to the end. And one of the final title cards is because of this one-year delay, Britain and her allies were able to defeat the Germans in World War II. And I wanted to put my head through my monitor. Like, no! Correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure you will. But if the if the Japanese don't bomb Pearl Harbor, it, hasn't it been said that Britain loses the war? <sighs> That's an interesting discussion. Because it's it's essentially well, essentially like at, at at best they had fought to a stalemate. At worst, they were on the verge of not having enough resources to defend themselves against whatever forces Hitler had left. That what saves Europe, and I don't mean this in like aren't we great, but saves Europe is essentially is an influx of soldiers from the U.S. Uh, in a lot of respects, yes. The flip side of that is Hitler. The inv- an attempted invasion of the British Isles by Hitler was always going to be an incredibly difficult undertaking. It's why they got bombed so heavily. 
Uh, of course, then by the end of that, the uh, the British Air Force actually stages some uh, is able to fight off the German Air Force in many, in a couple of key engagements that kind of derail things. So they were more at a standstill than they were under as imminent threat as they were at different points. Um, Hitler's already attacked Russia by that point in time because he has to, more or less. Well, that's that's the other part of it is is they never they, they would have never have conquered Russia. Yeah, um, that was never going to work out. Right. It, it's why one of those things, it's why the counterfactual, well, what if Hitler won? The only way Germany wins World War II is if Hitler is not Hitler, at which well, point everything changes. Well, hang on. To, to make it very plain, conquering continental Europe was absolutely uh, doable for Hitler. Especially if the United States doesn't enter the war, if the United States is neutral, if if Pearl Harbor doesn't happen, um, the United States has never kicked out of the Pacific. There's no engagement at all. They just sort of come to a truce with Japan, or Japan just settles for conquering China and leaves it at that. Um, and so the United States plays neutral, continues to sell weapons to both sides, it's a technology, etc., to uh, to both sides, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We're we're out of the war conquering everything from you know to france to russia doable and if he stops there and leaves it at that he wins the, the, you know we move we move on to the next part of history we move on to an we move on to an interesting cold war after that um a cold war like that with three parties would have been again what i mean again at this point you're again, it, it can never happen that way partially because of japan mm-hmm. believe it or not not just bombing pearl harbor Japan had already been um, had already engaged United and the United States had a pretty significant force spread across the South Pacific and into Southeast yeah, in, Asia. In the, in the equation that I'm devising, they base they share the Pacific and Japan focuses its efforts on China instead of in, instead of focusing on yeah, I, it out of the Pacific. Yeah. Again, you you would need different people in charge of Japan because Japan had a specific setup that they wanted to achieve for the Japanese empire sure. that in, that included chunks of Australia and the Philippines and New okay. Guinea, because that's where a lot of oil was. And Japan was oil starved because there's not a lot of oil on the islands of Japan. And okay. the, a, a decision things. change here or there in world war two is, is imminently winnable by the Axis powers. No one gave a crap about Africa. So that was Italy's for the taking. Um, if you're, if again, if, if England, if, uh, Germany leaves Russia the hell alone, Russia doesn't engage at all. And well, then, and then again, if, if the Japanese don't engage us, we don't re-engage Europe. We don't engage. The, in Europe. the issue you run into at that point stems entirely from England and Japan have, er, and Germany having to deal with England because mm-hmm. England was going to support France and the German war effort was not sustainable from Germany from half of Poland to Spain. Mm-hmm. Like they, there were resources, particularly the big ones, oil. They needed oil. They and the only way they were going to get it was by attacking the Soviet Union. So that was all. It's one of those things that was always, always, always going to happen. Mm-hmm. Unless the only way, again, the only way you don't get World War II as we know it is if you don't have Hitler, and if you don't have Hitler. The war becomes the war is still inevitable, more or less. But absent Hitler, everything's different because you don't have Hitler there doing some of the things that Hitler did. Your point. My point. Neville Chamberlain getting a meaningless signing of a 
affirmation of peace from Adolf Hitler was not in any way, shape, form, or fashion a win. The extra year that was gained was not the, was not the reason that Britain and her allies beat back the Nazi hordes. No, it wasn't. And that I object to. The characterization of Neville Chamberlain as having won. Uh, like, no. If you, want to tr- if you want to try and take the stance that Chamberlain has been unfairly done wrong by history, okay. He that's was... A, I, that's and, the thing. I, and, I am sympathetic to his point of view, but I, you're not. But I agree with you when you say, but you can't then take it a step further, you know, and then like, oh, and what, you know, like... It makes it sound like the like his sign like his quest for peace was actually a ruse to get British armaments up and running yeah. in the inevitability of war, which that was not the case. No, not at all. And that's my I think that's my big gripe with, especially the end of this movie is this mm-hmm. uh, like you I loved Jeremy Irons' portrayal here. I think he does a very historically maligned character the decency of being a real human being like his position is not un, is in many respects not unreasonable he's but that bit on the plane at the end when he's like well i've got this now you don't have anything you know that's not legally binding no but now if he breaks his word everyone will know who he is like they don't already really (laughs) and and this is not an issue of the line delivery from jeremy irons it's more an it's issue of the. Fr- it's an issue with the framing that the mm. movie takes, like the music, the musical cues they have going on here, and its position in the film is all. It is all very much designed to tell you, the audience, that this is a moment of triumph to be celebrated, when in reality it's anything but. And attempts to paint it the any other way are just it's bad revisionism. That's all it is. Yeah. So I. I don't. I like the fact that Jeremy Irons took this character, who is again very much maligned historically. Chamberlain is, again, he is perpetually pointed out to being weak as this great doormat for Hitler as he starts his conquest of Europe. Like, I I will grant that Chamberlain is done wrong by history in some respect. You're kind of the way if you wanted a loose equivalent in the American political system, you know, Herbert Hoover got done wrong by history. I was going to say, I think the one everyone points to in modern history is Carter. And not no. necessarily because his, hang on, and not necessarily <laughs> because of his presidential run, which I think is fairly criticized, but because of the great works of peace that he strove for in his post presidential career. Uh, look, I give Carter a ton of uh, credit for all of the humanitarian work that he has done after mm-hmm. being president. His presidency sure. was a catastrophe. No, no, I, again. <laughs> Well, and hang on. Here's why I draw the comparison to Hoover. Okay. Herbert Hoover did not cause the stock market to crash. No, he did not. And yet everything bad that happened as a result of that was attributed to him. But you know what, Robert? Everything that good that happened in the 90s was attributed to Clinton, and he's not responsible for the internet either. And... And if you we know. were talking about and if we were talking about people unfairly boosted by history, I would I would I would agree with that entirely. I'm I just like pointing at the pattern. The guy yeah, yeah. The, the the guy the, the guy when when bad things are happening, the guy who's there when bad things are happening gets the you know, gets the the benefit's not the right word. Um gets unfairly blamed. 
the guy who's in charge when things are happening that's good that have he had nothing to do with gets the benefit of the, the largesse of just being in the right place at the right time. It's one of my great like issues with among of all the Demo modern Democrat presidents is Bill Clinton because on top of being a rapist, was <laughs> also also is you know like the Family Guy joke. He's like he presided over the greatest economic boom of da 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 da, da you know, and that whole line that Lois gives, and it's like right place, right time. That was years in the making. Yeah, I mean, look. FDR does not get credit for World War II breaking out and saving the American economy from the Great Depression <laughs> via the sudden demands of manufacturing that came about because of a war effort. You're just there. Right. Clinton does. I don't give Clinton credit for being, you know, he was the guy that was there when it happened. It wasn't the result of anything he did. Right. Now, that in Chamberlain's case, there's things he did. Mm -hmm. But. The strategy of appeasement that was leveled at Hitler, uh, and again, it's utter failure in hindsight, That Chamberlain's view that the First World War was so bad that everything possible to avoid this again, now that we're even more advanced technologically, is worth taking was... He was he was not the lone defender of that point of view. That was the comment. That was the thought of the time. Everyone thought this way. Everyone had been through the absolute horrors of World War One and was like, you know what? Now that we have better machine guns and better tanks and better planes and bigger bombs, maybe we should try really really hard not to do that again. Here's somewhat of a modern equivalency that that I think. Um, in more in recent times gets misrepresented when you're when the big bad of the world is the Soviet Union and they've invaded a whole bunch of neighbor, neighboring countries and next on the agenda is Afghanistan it makes sense to give the people in Afghanistan who are currently ruling at the time armaments to defend themselves and drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan of course after 9-11 you know, people like to look back and go, oh, see, we had this coming because we gave the crazy religious zealots and, you know, Muslim religious zealots a bunch of armaments, which they turned around and used on us in the lead up to 9-11 and then finally culminated with crashing jets into uh, and crashing airliners into buildings. It's like, hang on. <laughs> At the time, they were th they, they, they were. You know, it was the best possible option with what we had. Well, and Sorry they weren't, you know, like big fans of America, apple pie and porn living in Afghanistan ready to fight the Soviets. The, the, the real the real failure as far as that goes was not arming the Mujahideen. It was the utter lack of follow up that we had well, after they drove out. Like we, we were right, in a prime position. There's a cottage industry of books that say we were dumb to do it in the first place. Just like there's a cottage industry of books that say Neville Chamberlain was dumb to appease Hitler. You don't know that without the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. There, there's a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of dominoes that are only dominoes mm -hmm. when you look at after they've toppled. Right. And, yeah. and that's kind of, so my point about Chamberlain here, long, the kind of long and the short of this is, I'm okay with you saying this is a guy who has been unfairly maligned by history, because I think that's probably true, uh, all things considered. I'm less okay when you decide to push the pendulum further and go, but the Munich Peace Conference was actually a victory because that year was critical in allowing us to then get our asses kicked for three and a half years <laughs> all over Europe. 
Like, no, no, yeah, no. It was a really stupid decision on the part of the filmmakers here because, like, you know, just just say a year later this all fell apart. You know, and you don't need to get into why Europe was struggling or what made Europe win. And like, like that bit of it is like to almost write America's part of World War II out of the equation. It's almost kind of insulting now that I say it out loud on the part of the filmmakers. Just that you don't even recognize that. Like, you think this is what did it, and not you know D Day. (laughs) (laughs) The hell. All right, anything else, Robert? If not, we really need to move on. No, that's that's my biggest gripe. Like the the quasi revisionism that goes into the finale of this film is baffling, ahistorical nonsense. And part of me does wonder how much of it is kind of this undercurrent of uh, needing to diminish every good thing America has done for the past. No, not even years. that. Like I think it's more specifically trying to shit on Winston Churchill, which has become sure. a thing that people do. Get your politics out of my movie, Robert Winfrey. That's an observation. Like <laughs> there were people who said there were people who objected to Gary Oldman winning Best Actor for playing Winston Churchill because how dare he play someone who in the nineteen who who you know, grew up in the early twentieth century hold antiquated racial views. <laughs> Not kidding. That's a thing. I'm sure people are idiots. Our dumb culture. And with that, you ain't kidding. You know, you you brought up the musical cues. Robert Winfrey, you did. You did. You brought up the musical cues. I did. So around one one hour, 13 minutes and 30 seconds. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And I think... (laughs) And I'll tell you, I think that was the thing that was missing from this, is they should have played like Rage Against the Machine. No. (laughs) You know, when Neville Chamberlain walks in the room and he was like, and I'll tell you what needs to happen here, Hitler. You just hear bomb track by Rage Against the Machine in the background. And it's just another bomb track. I mean, really what we needed was Bulls on Parade to be playing as as everyone drove up to the peace conference. Yes. Just everyone just jumping out, you know, all these British and, you know, Germans, and they're all just going Wu-Tang Clan ain't. Anyway, no. all of the- <laughs> you, have, you have now jumped from t- you, no. <laughs> Always got to push that envelope. Um, well, all of this to say that whether it's the Wu Tang Clan who ain't nothing to mess with or Rage Against the Machine, uh, you can find all of these and more on AmazonMusic.com. And as a matter of fact, we are giving away a free 30-day trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. The link in the pot cast description is get amazonmusic.com slash w2m network again it's get amazonmusic.com slash w2m network to have your free 30-day trial if you like it you keep it uh you pay the monthly fee it's comparable to spotify or apple music if you don't you can cancel at any time no fuss no must no contracts no pains in the butt who doesn't like free everyone likes free freedom darn freedom. right in fact you can listen to us on that particular service because the apple uh, the Apple Music area does, in fact, have a podcast subsection, and we're on it. We certainly are, Ollie. And you can link it to all your home devices. You can say, hey. Um... <laughs> you can't say Alexa, because yours will turn on. <laughs> Correct. Or the or commuter, because um, that'll, that'll make the other one go off. Uh, but you can link them to your, to your household devices, so that they'll play when you give them voice commands. And with that, here comes the money. (laughs) 
I need to time it so I I need to time it so I come back with that look on my face like Homer has. Just... <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, there's no money to be had here, but in case anyone's wondering, um, they, uh, yeah, they didn't even what, list the budget. <laughs> what we're gonna talk about here is a look back at the 2021 World Box Office, such as it was. Yep. Where a whopping one movie made over a billion dollars, <laughs> but, but another one came close. All right, so I ex look. I expect that that will have a resurgence in the next bit as the Chinese government starts forcing people to watch it again. By the way, you ended up being right, so I'll give you where credits credit where credits due. I thought Scream would would uh, repeat for a second weekend in a row, especially with the zero competition it had. Nope, Spider Man took the number one spot this past weekend. Hey, I was so, right about something. Kudos to you for being right. You're so you're so smart, Robert. You're so pretty. Um, um, one of those is partially true. The other almost not at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So yeah, no surprise here. Worldwide box office for 21, 2021 stands as follows. Um, Spider-Man No Way Home, the only movie to make a billion, the sixth most popular movie in history. I think financially, most, at least. F financially. Um, we're only talking finances here. And I don't want to have to keep repeating that. So just everyone finances. Every Anytime I say popular, I mean financially. Um, it's also, I think, the fourth most popular uh, most popular movie domestically. Um, I think it's already beaten Endgame. Um, I can't remember what what is just ahead of it, but it's close to like being the number one at this point. Not too, not too many ahead of it. The Battle of Lake Shenzhen, which was the Chinese propaganda film, that came in at nine hundred million. It was the only one to do so. After that is High Mom at eight twenty two. No Time to Die seven seventy four. Well, it certainly yet. died. <laughs> Well, um, in, in fairness, in fairness to that movie, mm -hmm. um, ab look, absent the pandemic, it's a billion dollar film. Yeah. The fact that it made 700 million in the face of every adversity that it had to deal with, including it being delayed multiple times, uh, is a testament to both the overall quality of that film, which we were mostly positive, mostly positive on. And the fact that people cared about Daniel Craig's James Bond. So you know, good for them for make it, managing that. Uh, next up was F9 from Universal. And it was Oof. the most successful movie of the year by a long stretch uh, at 726. Which I don't, is I don't mind. I don't mind calling that a financial failure at less than a billion dollars because you knew like that movie didn't just have a giant budget. Mm -hmm. did. They it's also paid... delayed since the year of the flood. Like it's been delayed and they some movies when they get delayed, um, they're the studio is kind of happy to let it just be a delay. Every time they delayed F9, they rebought all of their ad time. Yeah. Like they there were three distinct waves of advertisement for that film. Well, same thing with Black Widow, which which, yeah. which ended up getting thrown onto Disney Plus. Um Detective Chinatown came in at six eighty six. Venom let there be carnage. Was a big hit for Sony on, on top of Spider Man, but Spider Man they have to split the they have to split the funds. Venom they, they get, get all of themselves. Sony the, Sony gets no credit for Spider Man's success. Of course they don't. They none. get they get half the largesse. Venom they get to keep the whole thing, um, and then they have then they, you know then then they have to make all these different stupid Spider Man movies of characters that don't deserve their own movies. And they Madam Web, and they all fail. <laughs> like th this is what kills me about that, huh? Venom took off. Venom's a wild. Venom's a Venom is the most popular non-Spider-Man character attached to Spider-Man, right. right? How about so? Okay, how about a full Sinister Six film? Uh, uh. But what about Morbius? Uh, uh. About Black Cat and Silver Sable? No, for uh, God's uh. sake. <laughs> 
Get away. <laughs> Cut. The, stop it, Annie Pascal. You're a moron. Um, and, and yet they're going to keep trying, and we're going to get a Rhino film, I'm sure. I hope. And, no, you don't. <laughs> Even you do not hope for that. Anyway, Godzilla versus Kong, um, which is at one time one of the highest grosses of the year, but then the rest of the year happened, uh, came in at four. Or Godzilla versus Kong and, and being thrown directly onto HBO Max. Yeah. Um, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, um, oof. came in at 432. You know, I, I, I'm only saying oof about that because it didn't break 500 million, which I think no. was, I, I think that became a reasonable goal at some point. And so, falling short of that's a bit of an oof. I want to, because I, because I know this has been a big deal amongst our group of friends. It's been an, it's been a rather long and, um, just ridiculous part, uh, center, center <laughs> topic. <laughs> That we've had um but you know you know i think in march i had when Mar when theaters opened up around the time of godzilla versus kong i said when we were having that argument because i remember we we were just that at that point we were talking about wandavision and so there was a lot of talk and, and i think around then is when they had the first trailer for eternals and the contention was nobody knows who the eternals are this will bomb and the counterpoint to that was no one knew who the Guardians of the Galaxy were either, and you see how well that was. And there were large distinctions between the James Gunn-directed, popular culture-using, you know, hip-to-be-square hip, hip Guardians of the Galaxy that was right smack, smack dab in the center of the most successful film franchise ever. And the Eternals, directed by the sad van lady, in the, you know, with the piano, uh, who the trailer... Look. Eternals was basically the Inhumans. <laughs> <laughs> the trailer, as much as I liked it, was like very not Marvel, and no one knew what to make of it. Oh, and by that point, we didn't know the Delta Wave was coming. So, like every time, so that was, I think, my giant frustration with the Eternals conversation was in a world with no COVID. When you get to have the momentum of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which was wildly successful in the face of Endgame and then Spider-Man Far From Home, if Black Widow happens when it's supposed to happen, and then it's followed by the Eternals when it's supposed to happen, and there is no COVID, I don't think it does as bad as it does. But you I, can't not hold those things against the film and say, oh, it was an utter failure. It didn't capture the spirit of what people like in Marvel movies. It didn't have a fighting chance. Hang on. Y you made two distinct points there, one of which I'll agree with, one of which I won't. The notion that the Eternals would have done better absent COVID and the giant delays and whatnot and the restructuring of parts of Phase 4 that just – that gave – Pretty much everything that wasn't Spider-Man just shot it in the head. <laughs> uh, or, okay, not in the head, but it certainly crippled it. Mm -hmm. That's true. I don't think Eternals is ever a billion-dollar movie. No, but I think I, I I think when you and I were having this conversation pre-Delta Wave, what I had said was it probably tops out around Wonder Woman money, which was in the seven hundred millions. I and I think I more or less agreed with that. Right, like pre-COVID. Is this? A, it might be low. Like, I wouldn't have been shocked. And given the response to Eternals, I mean, even absent the issues of you know COVID, nobody seemed to care for it. I, I think it's it, fifty fifty. It's more fifty fifty than you think. Still, if you're a Marvel movie, fifty fifty ain't good. No, I don't disagree with that. I, I, I think it might have done more the like 
high 600 rather than really getting over the 700 barrier but that's that's hang on, having that, that's seen the point. movie in the reaction i think a fair assessment financially of what it would have made absent covid is between five and six hundred million which is still not great for a marvel movie no that's, but, that's pretty bad <laughs> but but it isn't jumping out of you know out of the high tower bad either no only in only it is only in the context of how badly it derails your momentum but mm-hmm. In terms of pure financial follow, returns, but no. when you follow it up with Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, real you know, live action, and then you follow that up with Doctor Strange meets the X-Men, it's you're fine. You can have- look when the, I'm just I'm just warning you when there's no Marion X-Man to be found in all of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Mm. What what's your line going to be about that? <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll tell you when I think of it. But okay. I mean, look look it. Things playing out as they should. No reshoots, no COVID. Everything is where it's supposed to be. By this point, Thor would have happened. We would have been fucked. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the original schedule, we would have had Thor. I would have shot someone. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure that's going to be my reaction to that film. So I, I keep I keep <laughs> playing with the idea of, of getting Jeff to contact you to get on one of his podcasts. And I'll tell you why. They recently did a ranking of, like, of all the movies. And Alexis was on it. Alexis actually moderated their 97 people that were on there ranking the Marvel movies and Ragnarok comes up and everyone's like, my God, Ragnarok's at like, you know, Ragnarok's at like my top, you know, five, it's the best and everything. And then I can't remember who, like who doesn't like Ragnarok and Alexis like meekly says, I know someone. And you, <laughs> and you would hear everyone just go, what? And I'm laughing hysterically because I've never talked about this before, obviously when we did the podcast and everyone thereafter. And I was like, I need Robert to go on Jeff's podcast and just scream about Ragnarok for an hour, banging a shoe on the desk as you do it. <laughs> I'm not going to bang a shoe. You are, Khrushchev. You are. I, uh, <laughs> no, I, will, I, I don't need to bang a shoe to get across my opinions on that film. But, but you know, it, it's just, it just cracked me up because, like, you know, you knew your your opinion of it was an outlier, but I, even you know, in the face I, of look, such I, ardent I, Marvel fanboys, it was like heresy. I'm just saying, <laughs> my opinion on that movie is more substan is substantiated more by people who have seen it more than once than anyone who has only seen it once. Well, like even guys like like the you know the pitch meeting people have pointed out that Marvel can't get away from undercutting dramatic moments with stupid comedy. But anyway, we're supposed to be talking about the finances here. Yeah, and, and so point being, the Eternals clocking in at a shade over four hundred million. Hmm. Um. Yeah, that's bad. It's not great. I, oh, sorry. I, that, that was I, it. I hang on. Hang, I, don't hang, think hang it's, on. I don't think people should read into it like you know. The narrative that this is Marvel in decline is stupid. No, and no, I've that, said that I, openly to people who've said and it. I and I agree with you in that case. Look, you've got numbers nine and ten that deeply underperformed. Go back up to number one again and tell me that it's suddenly in decline. It's not in decline. Right. No one cared about Eternals because it was a terrible idea, badly executed, dealing with it's coming from source material that not only it like look, the guardians of the galaxy didn't have a big footprint true but people who read comics knew who they were and were positive about them nobody's positive about the eternals even the hardcore nerds think they're stupid well what cracks me up about the eternals was essentially marvel shrugging its shoulders going well we don't have the x-men so we did the inhumans but we did it so badly it should be studied what's left on the really bench should. 
And hey, they went the Eternals. The, they went to the Eternals, which was also done really badly. Mm-hmm. And I'd have again, to look and see when it was in development. But I got to imagine what's so, so, I got to imagine if the Fox deal happens five years sooner, we don't get an Eternals movie. We get Fantastic Four. One million percent. Yeah. Like, but that's how no long it doubt taken. about it. Be- yeah. Because you got to remember, the Fox deal happens, and it's a year before they're even allowed to look at the X-Men and the Fantastic Four. Oh, yeah. But that's, still- what people, that's what annoyed me about that whole thing was like the day that news broke that Disney was purchasing Fox, it was like, then the X-Men will show up tomorrow. It's like, that's not how any that's of this not, works. No, <laughs> that's not at all how this works. It took there- a year just to get the deal finalized. It was like the deal was announced, oh, yeah. but it still has like it's got to pass through like government committee it has to be approved they have to make sure they're not breaking antitrust laws and then once they then, do then, then there's the- all the then there's all the stuff they're contractually obligated to release anyway right. there's new mutants um, there was Phoenix, Dark Phoenix. about which and look those both sucked out loud right but my point is it's like people like they, they don't really understand how stuff like this works and so like like why don't we have x-men now it's like dude we're just at a point you, you can't start to develop Never. a movie before you even have the intellectual property it doesn't yeah, that, work that's like that. technically illegal not to <laughs> not to mention not to mention how much money you've already sunk into everything that you've already announced do you remember the day in the chat where i where where, where it was yet you know it was mark versus everyone who hates the eternals part 756 like and you've got Mark, you've got to just stop fighting that fight, man. <laughs> well, that seems to have died now. Now that the, 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 this is now that apart. now that you've realized you were always on the wrong side of the <laughs> argument. Well, anyway, no, <laughs> the, the the day the argument was, we were fighting over what they should have done instead, and oh. I went, "Fine, what properties? What properties that aren't sequels should they have made movies of?" And you can't say X-Men or Fantastic Four and everyone went Fantastic Four and I almost threw my phone across the fucking room. No, no, I, I remember this because I was the only one who gave you a legitimate answer. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I stayed out of that argument for the most part. Mm-hmm. And then it got to that and like, no, the Eternals was always a bad idea, which I agreed with, for mm-hmm. the record. Like, I agree with that perspective. But you then did the logical thing and said, okay, look at what they have, then tell me what they should have done. And I think like Pat and I were the only ones who actually read what you had, the qualifiers you had put on your statement right? and went, okay, here. And we gave yeah. you reasonable responses. Right. And everybody question. else went and everyone else said Fantastic Four. And I went like, nobody listens to Pete. And I walked away to live, the, live in the woods deliberately. Well, you, um, you, you took a walk deliberately in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, moving on. Um, so Dune clocks in at uh, 398 at number 11, Black Widow. 379 speaking of disappointments at number 12 oh boy was it three guy despite being one of the better movies of this year by all accounts that's a lie and you know it it's 331 um a quiet place which i think was one of the few from paramount that was actually successful for them came in at 297 that was because they shot it for like a buck 50 uh sing, yeah, but- sing two apparently did better than Encanto. Which has got to be, you know, a spit in the eye for for Disney, but only came in at two forty one. Uh, Cruella, which was a Oof. giant pile of nothing, <laughs> and it's getting a sequel anyway. Came of course, in at two thirty three. Of course it is. Of course it is. And Canto, and it's going to be structured like The Godfather Part Two, <laughs> and that's not a joke. That's actually the inspiration they're taking for this. Oi. Um, Encanto came in at two twenty eight. Uh, but more importantly, we don't talk about Bruno. 
My country, my parents came in at 221, Jungle Cruise at 220, uh, and Raging I'm, Fire 205. I'm sad Jungle Cruise didn't really... F- Jungle Cruise suffered because that was day and date, if memory serves. That's when they were still doing yeah. the premier access thing. So yes, that was, it, that it, was right in the heart of the Delta Wave. It certainly made more than that for Disney when it when you calculate all the people who just bought it on Disney+. Plus. Right. Uh, you know, I had a lot more fun with that movie than I thought I would. So that kudos. was great. That was it's just one of those, it, it, you know, what are they going to do? Delay it another year? Because I think yeah. it's already been delayed a year at that it, point. It, it had already been pushed back a little bit. Yeah, they had mm-hmm. they had to bite the bullet on that one. But between what it did find in the box office and whatever it did on Disney+, Plus, they're doing a sequel, and I'm down for that. All right. Um, everything else is less than, almost less than $200 million. Like, Ghostbusters Afterlife, the feel-good hit of the summer, 195 I mean, the, I, I, I mean, not remember look, what the budget on that is, but I don't lower. think that, I, don't think that that made money by any reasonable account um that that movie suffered and i think we mentioned this like why would you throw that so close to spider-man <laughs> yeah like you you gave that thing what two weeks maybe i think it was two or three yeah and it, that it, was it came out ghostbusters afterlife came out a week or two after the eternals um and then a month before spider-man and then in between there wasn't much of anything because it's not like the people saw Ghostbusters or West Side Story. Oh, wait, nobody saw West Side Story. Nobody saw what, and, and, <laughs> and they're throwing in a pity bunch of nominations for awards, too. It was a nice movie. Um, Ghostbusters. Afterlife. Oh, you didn't mean that. And you know, <laughs> all right. So the budget on it was 75 million. It made almost 200. I mean, it was like modestly profitable. Yeah. Probably not when that cons- movie, when you I- consider this was also delayed. That movie was hurt badly by one, again, like you mentioned, one, it's positioning. Mm-hmm. Like, there were other periods of time when that movie could have been released when it was free and clear. Mm-hmm. Um, two, I think I think nothing hurt that more than the pandemic. Like, that, more than a lot of these other movies, mm-hmm. that really got screwed by, uh, there, was a, there was some kind of like Omicron wave starting right around then or some such. Like there was something going on yeah. that really hurt that because I think I think even if it's released like in the summer, mm-hmm. um, it's I'm not saying top 10, but we're a lot closer to the top than, than it wound up. So I didn't unfortunately, I didn't think to, to write this down ahead of time, but I don't think there were a tremendous amount of movies here that were actually like profitable. Just in terms of what they drew inside, probably the not. So just just as an example, like the Suicide Squad, which generally everyone liked, but it was also but it was day and date on HBO Max, and people. This was one of those films where, as much as people liked it, again, it's right in the middle of the Delta wave. People don't want to go to the movies if they don't have to, and Suicide Squad was one of those movies where everyone just opted to watch it at home. You know, like, and so the narrative that comes out of that is, oh well. You know, James James Gunn made a bomb, except that James James Gunn made a perfectly wonderful movie that people, by and large, enjoyed. It's just if they have the, what we learned from this year was if people have the op, the choice to watch things at home, unless it's Dune, they will absolutely watch it at home. People, I've mentioned this before when we've been talking about movies. Mm-hmm. The art of making a movie that needs to be seen on the big screen is largely lost on most filmmakers these days. Largely lost on the audience. Yeah, that that too. Go back to like the story I told about my coworker. Hi, Pabone. 
Um, where I'm trying to convince her to go see Dune and IMAX, and she doesn't see the value in that. She's like, but I don't understand. I have an HD TV. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> it's not the HD. Like, that's really not the mm -hmm. point. Right. But that's the thing is, Dune, you have to see on the big screen to truly appreciate the yeah. grandeur of the cinematography. Can we both agree that you don't need to see Suicide Squad on the big screen? 100%. I made a point of it, but like, you know, when it comes to seeing movies in the theater, I'm kind of a religious nut about it. Most of them I, are not me, though. I like seeing movies on the big screen, and I think, unfortunately, most filmmakers these days, again, like you mentioned it being lost on the audience, which is absolutely true. It's lost on filmmakers. Like, okay, you got Dune. Could you tell me the last movie before Dune that genuinely benefited from being seen on a big screen? I can, but you won't agree with me. Okay, I'm curious. Godzilla versus Kong. No, I'll agree with that. Okay, I'll I'll agree that that movie benefited from that format, hundred percent. But I can't, but I can't think of another blockbuster this year where I, where I absolutely, I mean, maybe Jungle Cruise, but mm. you know, but again, I think you probably get away with watching that one at home, but not Black Widow. Um, I'm I mean, I'm Eternals is probably another one, but that but the star of Eternals was the cinematography. But but even then, if you have a big enough, sharp enough television, you can probably live without it. Yeah, it it's it's become a rarity that a filmmaker mm -hmm. knows how to make a movie that really like you right. need the big screen to. Um, yeah. But like the, what, you know, the, the purge wasn't day and date or anything like that. But like, did you need to see the purge on the big screen? First of all, we didn't need to see the purge at all. But, <laughs> but you know, you don't need to see anything to be clear. <laughs> um, but like the purge, you didn't need to see on the big screen, and you know. And while the purge, um, I think did well in its weekend, I think overall that I think the point that I was trying to get to was I think without going through the numbers again, and I should have written this down ahead of time, I don't think a a large portion of movies this year made any money at all. No, there a lot of these, especially if you were to factor in delays and whatnot, right. I imagine there's a lot of red ink. Well, yeah, and, and and here's the thing, you know. I'm looking at the the movie schedule for this year, and you know, in the you know, the most common phrase I see in the Wikipedia pages when I'm studying up on these things and deciding what it is we're going to talk about. What we're Originally not, is, scheduled to be yeah, released in. Yeah, so this was supposed to be released in 2021 or 2020. We're still digging out of the COVID delays. I th this is one of the things that I I mentioned about the MCU when they were when they were kind of pushing things back. Mm -hmm. Like they're scheduled out. You can only do this so much before you're tripping over your own dick. Yeah. Like they literally could not afford any more delays. Otherwise, I mean, well, look what happened. Otherwise, they're, otherwise they're the Suez Canal and you got the ship wedged in. Well, look it. what happened with like Black Widow and Hawkeye. You get the stinger at the end of Black Widow. Black Widow happened in July. You don't get a payoff to the stinger until Christmas because no. of when Hawkeye appears. You know, and things like that. And, and I mean, that. That stinger was actually wasn't that stinger supposed to be at the end of, Ca of Falcon and the Winter Soldier too? Maybe I don't remember. Like there's, I mean, we've talked about there's a bunch of that stuff mm -hmm. in the Disney because that got reordered and shuffled around and now doesn't in some respects doesn't even make sense. Right, Phase Four was supposed to kick off with Black Widow and then Falcon and the Winter Soldier and then Eternals and then Wandavision and I think somewhere in there was Spider Man and, and Lo Loki was somewhere in there. Um, no, well, Loki was after WandaVision. 
Yeah. Like the 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 order, the only thing that came out of that was out of order was Falcon and the Winter Soldier was supposed to be first, but because of COVID and they were filming in Prague at the time, that all got delayed. And then WandaVision ended up being finished before that. So WandaVision came first. But that's not the way it was supposed to happen. It was supposed to be uh Black Widow, then Falcon and the Winter Soldier, um, then I think Eternals, then WandaVision. Da, 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 da. And then Loki and Doctor Strange, um, like WandaVision, and I think in the initial, initial, initial layout of phase four, it was supposed to be WandaVision ends and immediately we're into Doctor Strange. Yeah, I remember and then, that. And then from Doctor Strange, we were immediately into Loki. Uh, I, I remember that WandaVision and Doctor Strange were supposed to be right next to each other. That's the only right. one I remember specifically. Meanwhile, WandaVision was like Q1 2020. Uh, yep. 20, 20, 2021 rather um and we're not gonna get dr strange until this summer <laughs> like, at the know, moment you know we, so, we may get we may get loki season two before that happens in all probability uh yeah it, it's point being that it's a mess it's a yeah. mess and it would have been a bigger mess if they hadn't just started biting the bullet. Like they're gonna have to look at oh boy, nobody liked Eternals, and oh boy, Shang Chi really underdelivered. Right? Can you imagine if they had delayed Black Widow to November, Black Widow to November? We'd be waiting on Shang Chi now, and getting right. Doctor Strange next year in 2023. Well, the only good thing to come out of that particular scenario is I wouldn't have seen Eternals yet, and I could. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyway, I don't know how what what else more needs to be said about wrapping up 2021. Almost nothing made money <laughs> except for Spider-Man. Well, and... if you were not a Chinese prop, if you didn't come out of China specifically, that is, or that is you a, weren't, <laughs> that is a point. Not that, but there, but the China thing is something I think was worth spending a minute on. And so, for years and years and years, um, the biggest market in the world was China, and it still is. But China is largely rejecting a lot of American films, Disney because of their uh, inclusive agenda gets keeps getting locked out of China and they you know and that's a big factor into their budgets and while on the one hand I applaud Disney for saying no 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 gays are people too and we're going to put them in our movies and if I guess if you don't like them then I guess we just won't be in China meanwhile okay. <laughs> meanwhile we shot Mulan <laughs> 30 <laughs> minutes away from a concentration like camp in a Chinese concentration Muslims. camp boops <laughs> and our actress who plays Mulan Posted a bunch of social media stuff in support of the police in Hong Kong and that whole mess. So let's not pretend that Disney's Disney's adherence to the message <laughs> is in any way indicative of their feelings towards China. Um, I think, though, I I'm wondering how how much they're now reconsidering their position in terms of budgets and film release strategies, okay. keeping oh, in mind they're likely to get locked out of China going forward. Here's they're going to reconsider it pretty heavily. Look, here's a, here's an ugly reality for everybody out there. The biggest entertainment market for movies in the world is not the United States anymore. And this is a bear in mind. This is a recent shift. China's always had more popular, had a denser population and whatnot, but they were never the biggest market for movies until like the last two years. Like, mm -hmm. They've been growing, but it's only very recently they've overtaken the United States as like the biggest consumer of film. That's your biggest market in the world. Guess what? We're going to try and put a bigger priority on. I mean, look, that's what I was is, saying. Like, for years, and this is not, and for years, wanna, that was the strategy, but it seems like 
and this is a very this is an even more recent thing china doesn't want american films and they're very selective about what they do take and if you're now in the, if you're now an executive who greenlights films are you greenlighting 200 million dollar uh projects that are heavily dependent on the chinese market that may not let the film in in the first place i'm gonna say no i mean look if you want an example about the importance of a of china to the box office warcraft no no uh, I'm, not, I'm not even going to make the joke about venom which i do entirely blame on the chinese for the record but well, you remember that venom and that warcraft was entirely successful based on china and i'm glad and nobody made a buck fitty in, in in the united states and nobody's made noise about making another warcraft movie they are making venom sequel so i blame so venom okay. is a the higher order atrocity in my opinion <laughs> okay but if you want if you want a nice little specific example scroll back up towards the top if you would please okay okay right there look at number four then look at number nine those movies had roughly equivalent budgets one of them was allowed in china one of them was not right you guess which is which yep no, that's a that's a valid point. And that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, we, we talked a little bit about I, I, I don't think the two hundred million dollar movie is utterly gone. I don't I don't think we're like this. this I don't think there's enough, that hang on, hang on. in that same vein. I think there's a bunch of filmmakers out there right now who don't know how to make a movie for less than that. They certainly don't know how to make a movie less than three hours. I'll tell you that much. I mean, it, look, I mean this in all sincerity. If you hired Michael Bay and said, "We're giving you twenty million dollars," mm -hmm. and that's all you get for your budget, <laughs> he'd make Tommy Wiseau's The Room, <laughs> and and not pay anyone involved and just keep the twenty million himself. Yeah, I think the sum total of this is there was a lot of uh, noise coming out of the trades, and this is something I monitor very closely. I, I, I watch for it on Twitter, um, which, you know, the irony of my Twitter feed is when I'm looking for news about movie releases and budgets and and um, and finances, whatever, all I get are pictures of girls' body parts. When I'm looking for pictures of you girls' really body should, parts, all really I get is, is, is Hollywood you, news. You need to curate your follows better. <laughs> it's just, uh, I, it's the, the worst thing is I'm like at work. I'm like, hey, what you know? What's going on on Twitter? What what's going on in Hollywood news? Vagina, 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 vagina. Sub, oh God damn it! <laughs> sub to my OnlyFans. It's currently it's currently thirty percent off. I'll be your online girlfriend. No, I don't want this. Go go away. Um, then later on. Like, all right, let's look for girls' vaginas. This movie's been delayed. This movie's been delayed. This movie's been delayed. God damn it. I'm it's never going It's not the only thing being delayed. <laughs> Hang on. God damn it. I'm not prepared. <laughs> I'm not prepared for your funny. All righty. No um, <laughs> all right, I think we're done here. So... So 2021, well, giant dumpster fire of a year yeah. in terms of movie financials and lesser Spider-Man or a Chinese propaganda piece. Yeah, I don't know if this year's going to be that much better, um, to be honest with you. I mean, we're not... Well, look, let me... I, let me talk, no, 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 no. My kind of sigh there was not... And by and large, we're not dealing with wholesale theater closures for the yet. first entire quarter of the year. So, in knock, that, Hang on, hang on, hang on. Knock on wood. Yeah, well... 
Um, on the other hand, people still don't want to go to the movies. Like the movies are open and we're not dealing by and large in strict lockdowns and we're not dealing in wholesale uh, movie chain closures. However, that doesn't necessarily mean people are going back. And I think the, you know, the, this is another thing that annoyed me. Like I'm perfectly willing to allow people their happiness, quote unquote, to enjoy the Spider-Mans and Ghostbusters of, of the theater going experience that's fine enjoy I mean, yourself i object, I I object not... to the commoditization of nostalgia and all the idiots who go along with it but fair enough you took the words out of my mouth but hey um but here's where i'm like one nostalgia is not... just faulty memory <laughs> neither one uh gave a rebirth to to the theater going experience or the film industry film by and large has not changed in either case you know i don't i don't want to i don't want to relitigate those movies but can we please recognize them for the long-term projects they were and not, you know, this sun, you know, the, the, you did not find the holy grail of film, for fuck's sake. Um, well, they the, did. It's still trying to capitalize on nostalgia until we have to become nostalgic <laughs> for nostalgia Not itself. everything that capitalizes on nostalgia, like the gangbusters is the point. But oh, the other thing about this is that's true. people, th there's a false narrative out there about Spider-Man that it, it regenerated it reinvigorated the theater growing experience I'm like no it didn't it spider-man was, spider was endgame it was it was a large-scale event built largely up on the idea that everyone wanted to see the three spider-mans and 20 years of film on together on screen for the first time had a had a kid that had, uh, goes to the karate school that i do mm -hmm. asked me if he should see spider-man no way home because all of his friends had seen it. i i had to ask him so have you seen every other <laughs> era and he went no and at which point you kind of have to go okay i mean i'm not saying don't see it mm -hmm. i'm saying there's so much of that movie that relies on yeah. everything that came before it that if you're missing any of that it falls apart entirely which is a giant failure in the filmmaking which right I which, is, which is why there weren't there were certain people i didn't want on that you know who were going to be like who we're going to judge the movie as the end product of 20 years of Spider-Man movies and not as a film in and of itself. And that was just a discussion. I didn't feel like entertaining. I'm not running a daycare here. Um, <laughs> hang on. I'll, I'll forget myself. And I have no friends. Um, <laughs> anyway, my point being that Spider-Man aside, which again was Endgame levels of final of the you know it was it was Return of the King. It was Endgame. It was the final act in a long-term story with a huge payoff. This is not a return to film. I mean, look at how Scream is doing. Look at some of these other movies. I I don't. I mean, you and I, you and I mentioned I think when we were talking about Phase Four, mm -hmm. even after the delays and even after the issues. Um, because again, there's a bit of a stupid narrative going around that Marvel is in decline. Yeah, that's dumb. And, and hang on, hang on. And while I think that's, while I don't think there's enough evidence to conclude that that's an accurate assumption about where we are right now, you and I both kind of said, okay, hang on. So Shang-Chi, middle of the pandemic, and you know, it, it it set a bunch of records, and granted, you move the goalpost a lot on that, but okay, fair enough. We all, I mean, look, Mark's joking aside, and some of the people who have an irrational dislike of the Eternals to begin with aside, we all knew that was at a bare minimum a long shot, sure. right? 
you and I both kind of said that the real sort of canary in the coal mine here, it's not Eternals, it's not even Spider-Man, it's going to be Doctor Strange. Right. Like, that's the one that we have to pay attention to to figure out, okay, where are we here really? Here, last year, or this past year, 2021, it was Godzilla versus Kong was like, let's see where we are with theater going. But it was a little unfair because, like, they had just ended the lockdown in Los Angeles and New York at that time. Yeah, um, uh, like so, weeks away from like barely. Yeah. So this year, I think, I think the canary in the coal mine. At least the first one we're going to see, the first goalpost that we can kind of test where we are with a return to theater going by in large numbers to where we're re- we're talking about real money again and not the latest loss is going to be the Batman. Now, I don't want to get into a debate yeah. with you about whether or not it's going to be a billion dollars. That's kind of a whole other conversation. But I think Batman is a really good Isn't that day and day? to take the temperature of what's going on with theater going. Yeah, isn't Batman day and date or were they? No, 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 okay. no. That was a one year thing. And I think they I, should... I just I just couldn't remember. I couldn't remember. I knew they were cutting it off soon. I couldn't remember the exact date. I didn't, I didn't remember if it was. And it ended with uh, the Matrix um, vagina. A lot of things ended with the Matrix Resurrections. <laughs> All right. Um, and when I say the Matrix vagina, that means we're done with this segment. Uh, so let's move on to uh, the critical review. Are you ready? No! I said... Critical review is brought to you by Grammarly. Wait, wait, let me guess. Grammarly. It certainly is, Ollie. Grammarly for you listeners of Damn You Hollywood is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, spelling mistakes while also correcting contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, it's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. All right, since we're almost at the two-hour mark here, I'm only going to read a few of these because really, who gives a shit? Um, <laughs> so, um, 84% fresh, certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, 79% yeah. on Score. So the- that's a. I mean, I mean, look, I had my, I have my complaints about the film, but again, if we're talking pass fail system, mm-hmm. a, it passes. And I, and it, I think, I think purely on dramatic presentation, I, I think it's a win. Sharp direction and some outstanding performances make Munich the edge of war, gripping historical drama, even though the ending's no secret. It's largely what we said. And again. I'm not sure I'd go with gripping, but um, like I said, the individual scenes I think make make. I, I think that's what kept me. Because you're right, there were there were some slow parts of the movie where I was like, ugh. Um, but but you know, skip but, forward. Yeah, but you know, but those those parts where there's some shared dialogue, uh, you know, and it really comes across like a well acted stage play. I think that's the part that grips you. Um, Carmen Paddock of One Room with a View. While McKay's performance impresses again, and much care has gone into the historical detail, Munich: The Edge of War wants to explore hope in other ways without truly recognizing. Reckoning with the Nazi ideology or allied complacency. 
You just wanted a move. Look, if you want to see Nazis get violently murdered, I recommend Inglorious Bastards. And I'm not saying that as a negative. I'm saying if your complaint about this movie is they didn't hammer home enough that the Nazis are bad, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. They weren't making Schindler's List. They were making a movie about this one point in time. Uh, Todd Jorgensen of Cinemalog, using speculation and embellishments to fill the narrative gaps, this political procedural tends to oversimplify the sociopolitical complexities and moral dilemmas at its core. Yeah, I think that if I were to make a bigger argument about some of the issues I had with this film, I do think that trying to fixate the every everything on kind of the emotional core of those two characters does ignore and downplay and diminish the very real complicated issues that were going on. Uh, so um, I, I think that's fair. Simon Abrams of RogerEbert.com, top critic. Munich Edge of War starts off as a prim spy thriller and ends as an insufferable civics lesson. Yeah, I, this movie struggles hard on the landing. I mean, we both agreed with that. <laughs> um, let's see here. I'm going to do one or two more of these. Jake Coyle of the Associated Press, top critic. Sure, a cheer for gentlemanly honor. But like Chamberlain, Munich misses the moment. <sighs> really? Wait, this one's even better. How, it... how is that a review? How is that a, how is that a real review of this film? To try and pretend that a hurrah for gentlemanly honor? <laughs> really? Dennis Schwartz of Dennis Schwartz Movie Reviews blends facts you, with fiction. You self Okay, I'm not even going to call you a self-employed loser after that. All you did, all you did, look at me, look at me, you idiot. <laughs> all you did was describe historical fiction. <laughs> wow. My, I can you, see Russia from my house. You, that is a worthless, worthless review. Utterly worthless. Mike LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle, top critic. All Look, the I get that you live in the world's largest outdoor toilet, but come on. <laughs> All the historical stuff is enjoyable. Less so are the movie's fictional elements and the fictional elements ultimately dominate. I'm not I'm not entirely sure that's even true. Yeah. Like some of the best stuff in this movie is the fictional characters interacting. It's just only when they're interacting and not doing other stuff. Um, Guy Lodge of Variety, top critic. Go uh, on. You just you had to you had to throw one ply sandpaper toilet paper in there, didn't you? <laughs> Unavoidably sapped of tension by our knowledge of precisely what happened next, though it's gripping enough on an in the moment basis. It's really not like th this is my biggest gripe. I think with some of these takes, I'm not going to tell you that there's not scenes that are good. There are, but really, really, the notion that it grips you moment to moment means that you have to try and incorporate within that discussion all the in-between sequences that are just like watching paint dry. All right, folks, that is our year-end review and our review of Munich, The Edge of War. I hope you enjoyed... Oh, variety our... continues to be useless. I hope you enjoyed our re uh, revisitation of The Eternals for the 86 millionth time. And that was the last time until we get the sequel that I hope never gets made. Um, all right, so next week, Robert has the week off um, to go do other things to explore the life fantastic 
to get to know his damn self and be naked. Whatever it is he wants to do. He doesn't have to hear from me. I won't bother him at all. Those are the two things you came up with, huh? <laughs> um, so instead, I will be joined by Alexis Haina. We will be doing a triple feature of black and white Oscar bait, starting with Belfast, which will most likely, uh, at the very least, be nominated, will most likely win Best Picture, and then Passing from Netflix and Come On, Come On, starring Joaquin Phoenix. So if you like hoity-toity film, black and white autistic film, then come join Alexis and I as we ascend and talk about these aught pieces. Belfast, Passing, and Come On, Come On. Well, Bel- um, look, Belfast, I've heard a lot of really good things about, and I've debated. Uh, I haven't been able to find it yet, so I'm, I'm probably going to wait for it to stream somewhere because I missed its theatrical run. Mm-hmm. But that I've heard good things about. Um, two weeks from tonight, uh, Robert and I will be uh, doing Moonfall from Roland Emmerich. <laughs> you, you're going from the hoidiest of toidiest <laughs> to moonfall. Oh, I, I already have my tickets for that. I you, cannot wait. Well, look, you can take that whiplash. I, I believe in you. <laughs> oh, I are you kidding me? Moonfall is the one I've been looking forward to this, this quarter. Look, um, look, here's my only gripe with this, mm-hmm. uh, with moonfall. Don't try and sell me on that as an attractive cast. Just don't. Okay. Don't do it. Um, it's not a good-looking cast. The following week, myself, Jason Teasley, and Robert Winfrey will be reviewing The Devil's Life because God hates me. And then uh, Alexis Haina, making her one-time appearance for the month of February on Damn You Hollywood, will be joining Robert and I as we talk the video game adaptation starring Spider-Man and Mark Wahlberg, Uncharted. Oh, I'm still so torn on that. Like, I, I want to be excited about it. I love those games. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're like me and you love Indiana Jones, those games, that, that quadrilogy of games from Naughty Dog, are the true successors to everything that makes Indiana Jones great. That's what you've been telling me. Um, speaking of, I have no, I have no friends. One time, a bunch of people argued with me about the rel- about the uh, about watching The Big Bang Theory, and I got so mad about it. I made my wife do a podcast where we talked about the virtues of The Big Bang Theory, and they made fun of everyone that told me I shouldn't watch it and I should watch it. It's a very Bang. short show. There's no virtues to The Big Bang Theory. It's an hour long, um, and I call my wife Milky, and we and we can hear my son fart at the end of it. He was he was a month old at the time. Your, your son gave the only <laughs> appropriate review of that show. Anywho. Um, so we re-aired that, uh, yesterday just for fun and profit. Um, <laughs> and then in the evening, Ronnie, Ad- speaking of Oscar bait, uh, Ronnie Adams and I reviewed the power of the dog, um, of which my wife's, my wife's five second review of this is I can't believe you actually made me watch a movie with gay cowboys eating pudding. Um, that's my wife, y'all. There's uh, no pudding to be had in that movie. There are, you don't however, know what they were eating. Um, we do, however, see a lot of gay cowboys. There's a lot of gay cowboy in that movie. Uh, the French Dispatch, speaking of gay cowboys, and Cop Shop, of which there were no gay cowboys. Cop Tomorrow, Shop, I was kind of interested in. I never got around to seeing it, but have you seen it yet? Yeah, we reviewed it. I just said that. Oh, I, I thought that was still coming. I forgot that you'd already done that. I thought it was upcoming. Yeah, it was, yes, uh, again, like I, I thought it looked like a fun little time at the movies for what it was. Yep. Uh, tomorrow night on the Metal Hammer of Doom, after after I get done watching the Lights Out match between Adam Cole, Bebe, and Pockets, uh, we will be reviewing the Night Flight Orchestra, Aromantic. Why are you watching that? Because I like Adam Cole, and I like why? death matches. So, okay, hold, 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 hold. on, hold on, I don't want to do this now. I know why you like death matches. Mm-hmm. I get that. I don't understand why you like Adam Cole. Bebe. He's shorter than your son. 
<laughs> Shut up. Um, I'm not wrong. <laughs> Uh, we will be joined by Stuart Lang on Thursday uh, on our Mania of WrestleMania show. Um, that's the Attitude Era one that everyone's been waiting for us to get to. We have myself, Pat Mullen, Chris Bailey, and the aforementioned Stuart Lang, formerly of 401mania.com. We're looking at 1415 and WrestleMania 2000. And in the evening time, Ronnie Adams is going to help me figure out what the hell the Wheel of Time is all about. Um, oh, I can kind of tell you if you're interested. I don't care. Uh, on Friday night, Gavin and I will be doing a alternative commentary for the royal rumble 1992 some say it's the best royal rumble ever and then on saturday here in my eye um saturday we have a double shot we have an airing of our latest trivia show which focused on video games um i heard that was a lot of fun and then in the evening time myself and the other two podsmen will be doing an alternative commentary for the 2022 Royal Rumble. When it goes live at 8 o'clock, so do we. I'm not doing the pre-show. But you can hear us talk oh. for three to four hours following all the events of the Royal Rumble and allegedly the comeback of one Ronda Rousey. So that'll be fun. Is that what people are teasing? Yeah, that, that was the news today. All right, Robert, you have Did two they, minutes. Hang on. Is that just a rumor? Do they confirm that? No, it's rumor at this point. It's, I'm it's, not it's, it's, in, it's in the dirt sheets. Okay, then I'm not going to... I'm not going to buy that, neither should you. All right, well, we'll see what happens when it happens. All right, you have two minutes to do your plugs, and then I got. Then we're going. All right, dropping the curtain on you. I'm starting off the lights. I understand, Mark. <laughs> I cover professional wrestling. Speaking of that thing, a few nights a week. Um, this week, I covered AEW's Dark Elevation yesterday on Monday. Not a bad show for 40 minutes. I cover MLW, whatever they're doing. You, uh, that goes live on Thursday because MLW is nice enough to give me early access to their stuff so I don't always have to do it same day. Um, Friday, WWE SmackDown. Saturday, there is no UFC event. I will instead be covering the 2022 Royal Rumble for 411mania.com. In another universe, you and I would be covering the Don King pay-per-view. No. <laughs> we did it last year. Mark, I don't think there's a universe where I really want to watch a Don King paper. Who's the what's the fight? Just for the record. Uh Trevor Bryan versus I think Jason Guidry. And then there's um two African sounding names that are unpronounceable. Yeah. I can look it up for you if you want. There's no universe. <laughs> okay, move on. No universe. No future for me. So I will be covering that. If you're interested in that, check out the WrestlingZone411Mania.com. I actually don't know if I have to do the pre-show as well or not. I, I genuinely don't know. I'll find out at some point between now and then, I imagine. If I sound just terribly enthused by that prospect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am... There's nothing going on in the world of professional wrestling right now, not just WWE, but anywhere that's really kind of getting me interested. And that sadly at the moment includes Roman Reigns, who is, I think, the best thing in professional wrestling. He's the most interesting, certainly. But his thing with Seth Rollins right now is Mark, it's bad. Okay. I don't have any other way to say it. It's bad. I hear you. You'll be you'll be happy you get to watch Brock Lesnar and Bobby Lashley. I know, with no pants on. Well, they will on have camera. 
they will absolutely be wearing pants. <laughs> it's not that kind of pay-per-view. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Premium live event. <laughs> Is it premium or premiere? I think it's. Oh premium. God. Um, if you're interested in mixed martial arts, this last week I covered UFC 270, which was the UFC's first pay-per-view of the year, headlined by Francis Ngannou and Cyril Gan, going the distance. Surprisingly, Gan winning a de- Ngannou winning a decision, which is even more surprising. I was not shocked that Ngannou won. I didn't. I didn't think he could win a decision like that. Yeah, I, I just didn't think he. Dan, Dan and I were a little shocked too. Um, for the record, I did not score that fight for him, but I don't die on that hill either. Like three to two for Ngannou is acceptable. Um, I guess you listened to some of uh, Dan and I. A little I bit, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I could only stop in between fights, so mm-hmm. mostly when you guys were vamping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting experience not being able to stop the camera. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, mm-hmm. So you can get my full report on that. Um, we also got Davis and Figueredo and uh, Brandon Moreno in the third fight. They are now 1-1-1 one, one, and one as Davis and Figueredo wins unanimous decision to regain first ever two-time UFC flyweight champion. And they're probably going to have a fourth fight. And you know what? Sign me up. Those two have, they produce good fights. Not really any other way to get around it. They just, they're made for each other in some respects. And my, again, my full coverage for the rest of that card. I also host the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, which is your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. This last week, Jeff Harris came back to talk about UFC 270. So he and I talk about the fight results, the situation with Francis Ngannou, the dismal state of fighter pay, because we have the we have the full payout that the UFC gave in purses because California makes them report it. California reports that. The UFC paid in total purses for UFC 270 $1.8 million. Sean Porter made $4 million to get his ass kicked by Bud Crawford and then retire. <laughs> Bud Crawford made $6 million for that pay-per-view, and I guarantee you and I covered that fight, Mark. That may, that drew less than UFC 270 by a non-trivial margin. Allegedly, they offered uh, Anthony Joshua 15 million pounds to step aside so Alexander Usyk could fight Tyson Fury. He is uh, apparently seriously considering it. And for the record, I think he should take that. Work on your boxing, because as it stands, Usyk beats you again the same way, and you've got no hope against Fury. So I just want to remind everybody that fi- that 15 million is 14 million more than 1 million. That is true. <laughs> and Tyson Fury made $30 million to fight Deontay Wilder the third time. And Francis Ngannou got 600000 <laughs> If you're wondering why he's probably leaving. Hang on. Hang on. If you're wondering why he's probably leaving the UFC as the heavyweight champion, (laughs) there's a little insight for you. Mm. So Jeff and I talk about that. We talk about the results again for the rest of the card. We talk a little bit about some news of the week. There wasn't a whole lot. It's mostly about UFC 270. So if you're interested in any of that, please check out the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. I would appreciate it to double check how that latest episode's doing. But we're trending up on that show at the moment. So cool. for us. Still going. All right. That's it. That's all of our plugs, everybody. Um, two weeks, Moonfall. I can't wait to talk about that with Robert. We're going to have a gay old time. <laughs> you, ju- you just had to make the, the, the joke about the fluid penetrating the moon <laughs> yep. and flying it towards the towards the earth 
You just had to make it a gay thing, didn't you? I gotta be me. And on that note, really for, Robert, <laughs> for Robert Winfrey, I'm Mark Radledge. Be well, be safe, and behave.